Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. This is episode 73. On today's podcast, we've got Ron Loomis with Ron Loomis Racing. Ron's been a pioneer in the VW drag racing scene for over 30 years. He's produced hundreds of cars out of his fabrication shop in Southern California. He's been influential and innovative in the VW scene with things such as the Rev 6 clutch, the Black Magic clutch disc, the new suspension he's putting out, narrowed front beams with chromoly arms that are narrowed. He's got a substantial amount of product line coming out. He's also the U.S. distributor for vintage speed, high quality aftermarket parts for your Volkswagen. Now for some Facebook shout outs. John Farrell says he listens to the podcast and he had some guest suggestions. Also, JT Norris said, do VW people give you grief about having other than VW cars? And some people do, mostly my brother George, who you guys know for the podcast, but for the most part, you know, I'm a lover of all kinds of cars. But uh, JW Taylor said, get some DKP members on here. He'd listened to uh, Ron Fleming's episode about 12 times, he says. So if you're wondering, I do have some more DKP members on here. And it was Bill Schwimmer and it was also Stefan Zanti who was on the podcast. So a couple more episodes for you to listen to. As well as Justin Shepard. He loves the podcast and he wanted to tie in the correlation that he thought it was interesting that a lot of VW guys are into Porsches and BMX and all that stuff in the overlap. So good shout out. Thanks for reaching out on Facebook, guys. Make sure you guys like us on Facebook and you follow us on Instagram as well as go to iTunes podcast, go to Apple podcast and leave a five-star review. Put something on there. You get a shout out on the podcast. Well, without any further ado, guys, let's get into this podcast. It's a long one. It's a good one. And you don't have to be trapped in your house or watch none of that garbage on the news. Buckle up, sit back, and let's listen to some drag racing stories from Ron Loomis with Ron Loomis Racing. So on today's podcast, guys, I'm excited to bring Ron Loomis on the podcast today, drag racer, owner of Ron Loomis Racing, and he's been a VW innovator in the drag racing and street scene for quite a while. So Ron, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me, brother. Hey, so the way we start the podcast off every time is we we find out what your VW story is and how you got into Volkswagen. So what is your VW story? Well, I think in some way, shape, or form, every human being probably has a Volkswagen story, and I think that's why I'm still here in business, because there's so many of them. But, uh, you know, back in the day, when we all had hair and things were crazy, uh, there was no internet, and there was no, pretty much nothing that uh, we have to deal with today. I mean, we were all just going crazy in the 80s, and my roommates get the blame for that, Dave Perkins and uh, Carrie Taylor. They were two hardcore ranchers back in the day. And, uh, you know, I worked at a Ferrari restoration shop doing body work. I had the run of the shop on the weekends, and on the weekends, we'd bring uh, those cars down, and whatever welding and whatever things needed to happen on them, we kind of all do it together. It was a crazy time. So, I mean, as far as the start, at the beginning, yeah. I mean, my mom actually told me that I, I was uh, driven to the hospital and uh, was uh, being delivered in a Volkswagen on the way to the hospital. So, I, I guess that would be the original, original story of how I got started, but uh, yeah, so... As far as my passion for VWs, um, that didn't come until later on. Um, and like I said, my roommates basically get the uh, 
get the credit for that. Basically, if I had never room with them, I probably wouldn't be doing all this today. So you never know who you're going to meet. You never know what's going to happen. But uh, all those guys, uh, we're still friends today. And, uh, you know, fast forward to now, things have been really good for me. I'm, I'm really blessed. And so you started hanging out right out of the gate with guys that were drag racing? Yeah. 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 I mean, and as luck would have it, you know, I mean, look at Dave. I mean, Dave Perkins, I mean, he's, he uh, had a little bit of a hiatus, but he's back and he's pretty much got, you know, one of the world's fastest DWs now even still. So, you know, I, I, uh, I'm just very thankful, you know, it was uh, kind of a cool time. We were young. We had all these bright ideas. Um, you know, money was coming out of the cracks of the ground. It, you know, it was the eighties. Um, things were just wild, man. And it was, uh, Looking back, I mean, just see some of the old photos of of us back in the day. I mean, I had a mullet before the. Right. I think they even called it before they called it a mullet. You know. It was just called sweet hair back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was big hair days, that's for sure. Man. And you know what? Bugs have always been one of those kind of cars that uh, have been really cool, and for one reason or another, if you had a bug, you know, you wanted either fix it up or you wanted to hot rod it or. You know, I've heard some of your other podcasts, like with Larry Hall and and Steve Hall and those guys about their dad and turning, you know, cans into steam buggies and stuff. You know, that's 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 the Volkswagen, man. When when you have a Volkswagen, that's the deal, and that's why even today, these people just want to just have a passion for those cars. It's it's really incredible. And so when you get in, like you're not a mechanic when you start. You're working. You're a body guy when you when yeah. you're starting to do this as a hobby. Now, is it? out of necessity and resources that you start to work on chassis and, and motors and stuff, or do you just stick to doing chassis and fabrication? How, how do you make that transition from like working at the Ferrari shop to the VW thing taking over a good portion of what you do? Well, um, one of the things that happened, one of my, one of my roommates, Carrie Taylor, uh, he, we had gone to Bakersfield to go testing and uh, he had a really fast car, ran like mid pins and normally aspirated, and he rolled the car in, in Bakersfield. And so I remember a company, um, Frameworks at the time, they had a November 86 article on Hot VWs of uh, two chassis. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, I mean, like days after he rolled that thing, uh, Dave and Kerry jumped in his truck and took off for Arizona and picked up one of the chassis from Frameworks. And uh, they uh, brought it back, and uh, we started working on getting that thing put together for them right, right away. And... Um, you know, a lot of things were pioneered uh, out of that first car. And once the whipple got wet on that, I mean, it didn't take much time for me at all. Of course, that was 86. And then 87, I left the Ferrari shop and went to Torrance with my buddy, Robert Kaus. He was a good friend of one of the girlfriends I had at the time. And we started uh, Ron Lewis Racing, RLR. And, uh, you know, it's just been full throttle ever since, man. It's been, been a wild ride. And the, the cool thing is it's not over. I mean, there's... I'm more busy now than I think I was back then. I mean, really, to be honest with you. And I mean, talking back then was was kind of the heyday of drag racing. But in the same respect, it was still in its like getting to the tube chassis cars. Was that the point in in, in drag racing when it was starting to come around and cars were really going next level? Yeah, they were. When that happened, basically, I mean, everything up until that time, with a few exceptions, was a pan based uh, kind of car, and we were taking and doing as much as we could do to those things, you know, cutting them, narrowing them, raising them. I mean, all the stuff that's the mainstay today was pretty much leading edge back then. But when that tube chassis idea came along, it just 
turned a lot of light bulbs on for me, and uh, I started making cars in '87, and I've made hundreds of cars between then and now. I, I you know, I, I don't know how many cars really. I mean, I, I, I was numbering them at one time, but I just kind of lost track after I don't know hundreds. I don't even know how many it's been. And so one of the things that I've that I've talked about on the podcast, trying to figure out who pioneered, and I know its origins come from drag racing. But one of the things that's made such huge leaps and bounds as far as performance in VW street VWs is the narrowed front end. And yeah, and my question is, is who started, who started the first narrowed front ends for the street? Wow. I I don't know that anybody could actually tell you that. I mean, there's probably somebody who could tell you, but I I certainly couldn't. I mean, I've been narrowing them since the eighties. Um, you know, it's back in the day. I mean, in a, in the uh, in what you call the heyday, people would buy inset center lines, or if they had alloys, an alloy was one way to keep the wheels inside. Because as you know, the popular tire size for the cars was 135s, but right. even though those look cool, they don't ride really well. And so, in order to get a for real tire into there, uh, where you could actually have the car handle, you, you were going to have to narrow the front end. And I've seen, you know, there's a selected drop and you know, all kinds of different things that people have tried. And I know Ken Dahlberg, uh, small car specialty fans, he was he was doing the Puma beans and doing all this stuff. And so, you know, I mean, I think there's been a lot of folks that have had their hands in on it, but, um, you know, my deal has evolved to uh, now all the cores are hard to find. So I just decided to make beams from scratch. I, I know a lot of people have, but I make a chromoly narrowed beam now that uses a, a 932 oil light bronze as the bearing mm-hmm. and it just basically solved a lot of the problems but you know getting the front tires under the front of a volkswagen is uh it's a big deal because you know wider fenders don't really look that cool you know well and secondly you know one of the things that i think by proxy of being a vw drag racer you whether you're a welder you know an engine guy whatever at some point you start transitioning into a bit of an engineer because with the wheelbase being so short on these cars and then starting to change the track widths really affects the performance of the car. And, and, and we've seen over the years, you know, the rear traction bars and then, you know, uh, four link rear ends, all these different things that have come in to change the performance characteristics that help you go down the track straight, hook power up and go, you know, um, with some of these, from a suspension standpoint, what do you think have been like the biggest changes from like the pan cars to the beginning of the beam cars or, or the beginning of the, the tube cars? What has been the biggest game changer that where the VW drag racing started taking leaps and bounds in regards to suspension? As far as that's concerned, I think one of the biggest things has been getting the cars low. If you look back in the day, all the cars were really high off the ground. Mm-hmm. which meant the center of gravity was really high. Um, that was a big deal. So getting the cars down on the ground to change the center of gravity uh, was much a big deal. And so that being one of the things. The other thing that was one of the big deals was the rear suspension. Uh, not to say that the front suspension wasn't important, but the rear suspension was all centered around the swing axle Volkswagen transmission. And the popular way back in the day was to take a stock uh, torsion bar and preload the daylights out of it you know, load it onto the ledge, put flop stops on it, and uh, have the thing sitting like a Baja bug on the starting line with all this positive camber, 
and you drop the hammer at whatever RPM and just start grabbing gears. But the problem was on the top end of the track, when you let off the gas, the car would go right back to that same stance. Well, whenever that car goes back into that positive camber, the toe goes way out, the center of gravity pitches up, and as my friend uh, Dave Perkins, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. he, he uh, mentioned that uh, uh, Volkswagen going down the racetrack is kind of like throwing a hammer. <laughs> the head will always end up hitting the wall first because it's the heaviest part. Well, in a Volkswagen, the engine's in the back. So whenever you decide to let off the gas, that heavy part wants to come around. And if you let it, if the car's too high or if the suspension isn't set up right, um, then you're you're going to go for a ride. And unfortunately, a lot of people have had to find out that out the hard way, yeah. Yeah, and and the change in suspension geometry, and then also, so you were saying that on they were everybody was swing axle back in the day. When yeah, for most for the most part, yeah. Yeah, and when did the the uh, when did people start changing to IRS, and and what and and what were the differences with the changes of going from IRS, and well, but to back it up a, a little bit. Lowering the center of gravity, and that when we saw it came out in the hot VWs back in the day, and I'm not sure what day it was or what year it was, where they started raising the whole rear set of the car, like lowering the rear end by raising up, doing a tranny raise on it. Who started doing that? Uh, there was um, a couple of pioneers back in the day that were doing some stuff, a few individual guys, uh-huh. uh, and they were certainly for me. So I didn't, I didn't originate that, but. Uh, in some regards, I think I've kind of perfected it just over trial and error over all the years. But I knew for certain one thing, that the cars needed to be low if they were going to be right. Now, since all the cars were centered around what was the most popular setup transmission-wise was, was the swing axle, what we kind of figured out doing was, uh, for instance, like when we got Kerry Taylor's car back here from Frameworks, uh, they were using built-in shocks, and the shocks had, uh, let's just say, 200-pound springs. Well, we found out real fast that the 200 wasn't enough, and neither was the 300. And then at 400 pounds per square inch on the rear springs, we were getting kind of close. And, you know, 450 ended up being something that would do and would work. And then now, if you fast forward to today, uh, in that same car, I would probably put 700 pounds spring. And the deal was that with that big spring, which blew the mind of any any VA guy on the planet, because the typical VA would only need, like, maybe 250 to 350 pound springs in the rear. So their estimation is that how could this little car need that much spring? Well, what they didn't count on was the fact that it was a swing axle or independent rear suspension. So much like a Corvette or a Gotham Z car or a Jaguar or any of those cars that have the independent rear suspension, when you nail the gap, the first thing the rear wants to do is slam into the ground. So basically with putting the bigger torsion bars and the pan cars going up from what a stock bar would be all the way up to 28 to 30, even in some of the race cars, 32 millimeter bars, these cars still want to squat, and if you can control the squat uh, with a good set of shocks and with the right torsion bars and keep it within a certain range, that means you can also control the rebound, you can control the camber, and then that makes the car, if you have it low enough, a pretty good handling car. And you asked the question about when we kind of moved over to IRF. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, it wasn't until hmm, probably about five, six years ago when we really started moving over to IRF because I think everybody was ready at the time. Uh, the swing axle thing had kind of run its course. All the Type 1 trannies were being replaced by bus boxes. People were taking the bus boxes and turning them into swing axle bus boxes with certain kits and stuff. Let- but every setup had a problematic deal. And so finally, when we ended up with full IRF, uh, I think it kind of has come 
to the point where now it's actually right, as right as it ever should have been. Because with the IRS, you can obviously control the the, the, the camber and the caster on the wheels also yep. uh, get a lot more finite adjustment. Now, I, and taking that point and going from there, how critical on your average street bug, let's say, let's say, because the majority of the listeners that listen to this aren't, aren't the heavy drag racers, but they've got, everybody's got a 1776 with dual carbs as a backyard drag racer. And h- how critical is uh, like a, and is it, is it something that they do like four wheel alignments on Volkswagens or really getting the rear end aligned? Like how critical is that in regards to how, how good the car, even a street car hooks up? Well, I think it really has to do with how much power, you know, the car has. So mm-hmm. like, for instance, if you were to take one of my, or anybody's race motor for that matter, and put it in a street car, you'd, you'd probably go on your lid before you got out of second gear. Really? So if the car is a stock height, and the suspension hasn't been altered, it, it's really only meant for going 65 miles an hour, maybe, if you're lucky. Yeah. Every time every time you hop it up, and if you talk about the Garden Variety 1776 or motors like that that maybe have 80, 100, 120 horsepower, and then you put a 2-liter in there, you maybe go up to 120, up to 150, 170. You know, every time you step that thing up, you need to do something to the suspension, and that's where people, for the longest time, didn't really pay attention too much. I mean, I remember John from Topline here next to me talking about all the cars that would come in and they would have these big motors in them, but he, he invariably, when he would take the test drive, when he would do something or work on the car, when he got to the end of the alley, he would hit the brakes on the, the freaking brake pedal would go to the carpet, you know? Yeah. So uh, a lot of the things that we were doing back in the day, we really didn't pay too much attention to safety, to brakes, seat belts, roll bars, suspension. You know, a big motor was was enough, but... To answer your question, um, once you've got the car down to the right height, you got the right suspension on there where you're limiting the travel of the rear suspension just via uh, torsion bars and some good shocks, the car will, will handle remarkably well. I mean, we've got cars running 150, 170 miles an hour. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah, and this, and it's the same wheelbase as a stock Beetle? Yeah, 94 and a half inches to 95 and a half, depending on which model you got. Yeah, that's insane. So well, I want to get back in suspension suspension talking a little bit, but I, I want to jump back into your history. And so sure. now you start you, – you, so you start by getting a well – is it a weld-together chassis kit, and then you decide to open up your shop, and now you become – obviously because of proximity to Southern California, not a lot of people maybe are doing what you're doing at the time, building chassis, so there's a market for the, for you. And as you start building chassis, you're still racing this whole time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I – I didn't really, well, in 87, I had a fiberglass dune buggy that I got from a friend of uh, mine, actually Dave Perkins' brother, Doug, he had this, I had a storage unit with him, and in the storage unit was this pretty awesome fiberglass dune buggy, and when I, when he opened the doors that day, when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta have that thing, and so, like, uh, I didn't realize what was happening, but my CD buddy just owned me, you know, back then, I had V8 uh, hot rods, motorcycles, like 900 Ninja Kawasaki's and the 752 stroke Kawasaki FCR 1000, uh, along with my VA Chevy Lev that I had. So, I mean, I was, I was pretty much off into performance, but not into the Volkswagen into things. And when, when I saw that thing and, and I said, I gotta have that, I started building the motor for it right away. My VA buddies kind of disowned me and they didn't disown me for long once they figured out how fast <laughs> the car would be. But that, that little car ended up, it was a street car. I drove it everywhere, but it, that thing ended up running 10 flat, like 134 miles an hour. So, I basically took that car, dismantled it, and put together Beetlejuice with Robert Cowswell when I showed up in Torrance in 87, uh, just after helping Kerry get his car together. 
and that was it, man. After that, I did Jack the Kitty's Tube Chassis Car, and then, you know, hundreds of others. But, you know, we, we have a lot of fun, and those cars really, they set a lot of records and opened a lot of eyes. And it's good enough for me that I had the help of a lot of good friends that really, I mean, as you know, like Jack the Caddy, Dave Perkins. I mean, all these guys are uh, really accomplished people by themselves. So, yeah. I mean, once we got together and collaborated, you know, it, 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 was, uh, it was like magic. So your first, your first most like well-known car is Beetlejuice. Yep. And then wh- what? Uh, what's the next car you build after that? It was Jack's Pro Stock car. Yeah, that's that's the very very. Uh, other than my own personal car, which was Beetlejuice, Robert and I were co-owners in that car because I dismantled my buggy and took all the running gear out of that to put it in the uh, in that tube chassis car. Right. Then uh, very quickly, right after that, I started building Jack Spaghetti's car. And uh, then we campaigned uh, with that for oh, a number of years, and that, that car set all kinds of records. And then now, you, you were one of the cars you're known for racing was the Notch. Yeah. Now, yeah. now talk yeah. to me about everybody's racing bugs, and then you decide to go with a Type Three. Yeah, what a what a thing! Uh, I was building uh, a car for uh, one of my customers at the time, and Sean. And he actually had this notchback that was a street car that he wanted to turn into a tube chassis. And he'd been around the shop and he'd seen the cars that we were building for guys. And so he decided he wanted one. Well, we got into it and started building the car. And then he said, hey, why don't you take this thing and race it? So off I went. I got a got a motor from Bug Pack from Bill Taylor and the guys over at Bug Pack, a KRPM deal, and uh, started putting that together and doing some research and development on that that car and that motor. And, um, yeah, 1990, was it 91, I think? Yeah. Uh, I started racing that notchback, yeah. And, I mean, that was pretty. That was a pretty unique car to have on the track. People weren't really, I mean, you didn't see a bunch of notchbacks out there, Type 3s, because. Uh, no. Obviously. No, it's, it's, to, my, to, to my mind, there, I did, there wasn't any, and that's one of the reasons primarily why I wanted to do it. I, first of all, I thought the cars looked really cool, um, but. I thought, you know, what a better car to do than, than the notchback. And uh, I tell you what, that, that was the best car, I think, that I've ever had the pleasure of driving. And I had the most fun with that car. Even my new Beetle and the Ghia and, uh, you know, all the different cars that I've had. That notchback was just about the, the best car that I ever had. It was pretty cool. Now, w- what kind of difference did the six-inch wider pan make as far as high like top end on the track was that was it a discernible difference between a beetle and the and the and the pan or are they the same pan width i mean the car is actually six inches wider but when you built those tube chassis cars are you narrowing the suspension or yeah it still had to be narrowed because the outside width of the fenders itself it's still only the inner portion where the doors are at that's actually skinnier and a skinnier and a beetle really the outer side the wheelbase and the track width are still all the same but I'll tell you this, um, I've driven every body style that there is, and the deal is with a Type 3, it has fleet sides. So, in other words, the sides are flat, mm-hmm. and it almost acts like a rudder. Now, if you can imagine the top view of a Volkswagen going down the racetrack, it's, it's like a bumper boat with no rudder. It, it doesn't, there's nothing on that car that tells it it has to go straight. So, that's one of the reasons aerodynamically, so, like, for instance, I drove uh, Lyle Bernicloff's car for Rancho uh, one year. I, you know, he asked me if I would drive his car, and I did. 
And I jump behind the wheel of that after jumping out of my notch, and I'm like, dude, something's wrong with this car. <laughs> so we looked it over, looked it over, looked it over, and this thing had the dance that it would do on the top end. And I was like, man, something's going on. Well, turned out being that really on those Beetles, you don't have the stability that you have on a fleet, like on a fleet side car. Sure. The whole car is round. It's round, it's round, it's round. So basically, no rudder, and the only thing telling that car to go straight is whatever contact pass the wheels have. If there's wind or if the track is not exactly in good shape or a little greasy, uh, or God forbid you're out of the groove and into the marbles, then you're basically on your own. And that, you know, that's why those cars are very temperamental on the top end. And if, if you do one wrong move, you could be on your head. And now, so then that would bring us to the next evolution, which is like the big wing cars. At what point did, um, did people start doing the big wings on the back? Because I mean, it, it was a it wasn't until like Pro Turbo and stuff, or, or the 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 real fast cars, where people started doing wings. Am I right on that? Yeah. Again, I think I probably have to give credit to my roommate Dave. He uh, he made a lot of wings back in the day. Him and Doug. Uh, I think he actually called the benchmark. Uh, he was making wings and selling them because he realized because his car back in the day went like 150 miles an hour. Yeah. With Nitro. So, I mean, you know, he, I think he realized right away what was needed. He was a, well, he still is, but back in the day, I mean, we didn't really realize it, but he was, he was really ahead of his time as far as thinking ahead. And I gleaned a lot of, uh, a lot of cool things from Dave. He's a wicked smart dude. And, uh, uh, his wings were pretty conservative by today's standards. I mean, as you can see now, the wings are pretty much turned into, they look like Promod now. Right. Um, or, or wing sprints, you know, but, uh, there, there is a point where um, where you get too far in the wing. I remember Adam Wick telling me a story one time that he he uh, sold his car to a guy down in Mexico, and, and then the guy wanted him to come down and uh, make a pass in the thing. And so uh, he took his car down there and flew down there, and uh, then he made a pass or two in the car. And then he adjusted the rear spoiler on the wing. It was adjustable. Uh, the wicker bell on the end of it was adjustable. Yeah. And... Uh, he uh, put it up to the top adjustment, which would have made the bill stand up straight up. Well, the very next pass that he made, he put the car on the top end. And he said before that, the car was perfectly stable. So how the air comes off the back of the car is almost, if not as important as how it comes over the front of the car. And I think one of the things that happens is people start just putting bigger and bigger wings on these things. And bigger is not really what is going to make the car stable. There's a certain amount that it needs. And beyond that, I think you're actually hurting it. Yeah, no, I've, uh, Adam, Adam's here local and I, I'm at a shop quite a bit cause it's not far from where I live and it's on my way to work. So I stop in every, I'm one of the guys that stops in and harasses him on a, a regular basis. And, uh, yeah. well, I'll have him on the podcast here cause he was out back in those days doing drag racing. Now, as we know, he's evolved into off-road racing now as far as engine building and whatnot, but there's still a drag racer inside him that wants to get back out there and drag race. I keep pushing him to get another drag car on the road, but, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah, it's I can't interesting. Tell you how many times you, I can't tell you how many times I was over at Adam's shop dino and my stuff. Oh uh, yeah, for well, every event. You know the great part about talking to him is he he's you know he was around there in those times and he you know all the names of all the people that are there and he's got all these stories as to how you know he got into this stuff. So I've I've had a lot of private conversation with him about stuff that's pretty cool and uh, and I'm looking forward to getting him on there. But but. You know, all this ties together because you, him, all you guys are there, you know, back in the day doing this. And now 
Now, I ask a question here. You may or may not want to answer. Did any of these cars ever hit the streets for some Saturday night fun ever? Um, as far as hitting the street, I don't think really hitting the street. Um, we built cars specifically for the street, and some of there have been some of the cars that we've put license plates on. I, I joke around sometimes with some of my guys that um, our version of a street car is a race car with license plates, you know. Right. And there are class there are classes actually now that people can run that have actually um, basically like a street car where you got to drive a, a certain number of miles, and then once you go on your loop of twenty miles then you can um, basically go to the race and, and then race the car and have competition. And, you know, if you try to race a race car on the street, um, you'll actually end up finding out a lot of times that basically the cars won't uh, won't end up doing well because, you know, to drive a car around takes actually kind of a lot of um, uh, safety equipment. It takes a lot of cooling equipment. And, uh, you know, these race cars, sometimes they're just not made to do that. So Yeah, they t- it takes some detuning to make them you know, where they can sit at a light and idle for three minutes, you know. Um, but now, when you were drag racing, you you were building your own engines as well? Yeah, I always did my own engine program. It was one of those things where I didn't, you know, we were all competing against each other, so it wasn't like I could go over to so-and-so and so-and-so. <laughs> I mean, basically, you know, we were, we were competing against each other, so sure. we were all cordial and, and we were all polite to each other uh, for the most part but when it came to, to our, our engines and our you know cylinder head portings and what cams we were using and you know different stuff like that you know it was uh it was game on so we didn't really feel like giving any of that information away but yeah i always did all my own engines like i said earlier um the arpm program that Budpack had that uh, Bill Taylor was in charge of. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of work for them and figured out a lot of things with the oiling on the three-piece case and um, the head work and some of the other stuff. And that's, those are the motors that Crystal Beth and I both had in our cars because basically with my association with Buckpack, the original Buckpack Bullet, um, Chris and I both enjoyed having a really strong engine platform where we didn't have to worry about the bottom end. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a good deal. And And so... For the big cars, the three-piece the three-piece engine cases are like the way to go. If you're looking, if you're gonna like spending the big money up front on the bottom end is gonna save you a lot on the back end. Do you think an engine failure and things to that extent? Um, yeah. So I mean, you know, everybody, well, everybody. There's quite a few players. You know, Potter uh, had his run. He's still, I think, manufacturing uh, engine blocks. You know, Scat had their killer case. Autocraft back in the day and now, um, Mike's taking over for Autocraft. Uh, and then there's the TF1, Todd Francis makes the TF1 block, which is pretty nice. So there's still quite a few manufacturers. I mean, I think most of the guys now are using Autolinea blocks for the 94 based, uh, programs, but all those other blocks would allow you to go to 101, uh, or, you know, 4 inch 4, 4 and 8, 4 and a quarter, like Potter's 4, 250 bore, mm-hmm. uh, 108 millimeter cylinders. So, I mean, uh, my motor that I had in the notchback was uh, a 75 uh, stroke uh, with 105 bore, and uh, you know that thing that thing hauled the mail. Well, I think the thing ran like 970s, 137 back in '93. Now that's an odd combo. Why why would you do a 75 stroke? But- um, there was a size engine size limit and a weight per cubic inch, so we had to kind of fall into a certain. 
category. So, you know, they just take your cubic inches and multiply it by 8.5. That was the rule at the time. Mm-hmm. And with that, you came up with a certain number weight, 1,300 pounds, 1,350 pounds with driver, um, whichever uh, you wanted to follow. And, you know, there were different camps. Some guys would do like an 88 by 94 motor. Some guys would do a 74 by 101 motor. You know, it just depends. There were different camps. And uh, different people, you know, just trying different combos and stuff. So, so what was your philosophy on such a short stroke? Because that was pretty. That I would assume that was pretty unorthodox. That stroke with that with that bore. Um, at the time, I think it was. But the, the deal is, with a bigger bore, you could get a bigger head and a bigger valve. So, you know, my my deal was I just wanted the the cylinder has to breathe more. So it looked like it worked too. I mean, I, I, I still have those parts from back in the day, believe it or not. I look at them now and I almost have to cringe like, Ooh, what was I even thinking? You know? So no, that's crazy. I never even knew the stroke on that motor was such a small stroke, you know? Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about rod angle and all that stuff, it's a pretty conservative rod angle. And yeah, that, that motor, I mean, we, we always like long rods. So like in a motor like that, um, one motor I had was like 74 by 103 bore. Wow. Um, so when you took that combination with a, I think I had a five, uh, eight rod in that thing. Um, you know, basically that thing was a screamer. So I'd run it to like 9,200 RPM back in the day. The big back in the day was trying to find valve springs that would hang on to it because the valve spring technology was pretty much crap back in the day. I mean, now they've got it down. I mean, the technology has brought so many parts forward now that, you know, you, it's limitless really what you can do now. I mean, really just, it's just a question of how much time you want to put into it. But back in the day, you were limited by what was uh, available or what was uh, coming out of, like, say, NASCAR or something like that. Sure. But that was it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you guys and you guys were limited on you could get valve springs, but you had to find them the same diameter that would fit inside the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean. Well, we didn't mind. I mean, back in the day, race, you know, racing those cars and stuff like that, I mean, hell, if we had to change valve springs once a race, so what, you know? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's insane. And so, you, on your first cars, are you running uh, naturally aspirated, or are you running turbo right right from the beginning? No, in the beginning, I was normally well. The, my my buggy was a turbo, but when I um, when I got the chance to do my own car, I thought, you know, this pro stock thing is pretty good because there's a lot of those, there was a lot of those cars. You mm-hmm. know, I remember there was like 16 cars trying to qualify back. You know, when we were doing this deal, and. Uh, I decided that I wanted to go out and compete. You know, I mean, Jack was already off and running. He's kind of gone off to do his own thing. And so I decided to jump in with two feet. And, uh, yeah, so it was him and me. <laughs> him and me. And a lot, a lot of the finals, it was him and me. So, but, uh, we had a lot of fun. That, you know, that car was normally aspirated. It was, uh, basically, like I told you, 74 by 103 bore, had an SK98 cam. It was 54 by 44 valves. I had, uh, one five potter rockers. Uh, I, I almost exclusively always ran Weber's if I could. I experimented with Terminators. I experimented with the bird carbs and somehow always found my way back. Even Plenums, you know, I had uh, dual Holly Plenums on uh, a couple of the cars that I did. Just trying to find new stuff, you know. Right, right. And then when did you make a shift to turbo cars? Oh, uh, wait a minute. I, I, I think what happened was I kind of took it as far as I wanted to take it. Um, then I decided, um, I wanted to do nitrous. So, uh, 1998, uh, Volkswagen decided to come out with a, a new Beetle and we caught wind of it. And I thought, you know, that's going to be the future. In my mind thinking at the time, you know, that, that's going to be the future. If there's a future at all, and I've heard some of your other podcast guys talk about, 
you know, the future of Volkswagens. And I've heard you even comment or lament the drag racing is, you know, headed in a different direction than we'd probably like to see. Yeah. Um, and, and my, my standard answer to people, and because I'm, you know, half deep in this end of the industry is that I think that there's always going to be uh, Volkswagen racing for sure. It, and it doesn't really go away. It just evolves or changes. And it certainly has morphed and changed. And I thought that the new Beetle was certainly going to be one of those things. So when they came to the, to, uh, making that new Beetle, I saw that and I went, you know what? I got to get down to the dealer and I got to order me up those body panels. So off I went to McKenna and Huntington Beach when my shop was in Huntington Beach in those days. And, um, I got all the body panels from, uh, from McKenna. And took them back to my shop and I built a new jig and fixture because the body platform was so much bigger mm-hmm. uh, than my normal small beetle deal. The track and the width and the wheelbase was just all different. And I just set about building that, that car. And it was a 98 model, but I debuted it in Texas, uh, in the year 2000. And, uh, at first it was normally operated. Uh, then it didn't take too long for me to figure out it was kind of a heavy big car and I couldn't compete against the other smaller cars. With what I had just because of what was going on. So I put nitrous on it. And then uh, with nitrous, I spent a little bit of time and got tired of uh, buying new cylinders and new pistons. So I think that set up ended up running 940s at like 143 at Palmdale. And then it wasn't too long after that, my brother came to me one night, I think at three in the morning here at the new shop, and he said, What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, What do you mean? He goes, Look, he goes, You spent all those years with the best, and you guys, you know, kick ass and you know, set all those records. Why are you fooling with nitrous? And I, I think I finally, at that point, I knew, I think he knew right when to get to me. And I think he, he got to me at just the perfect time when I was like tired. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. So I took the nitrous stuff off and I put carbureted turbo stuff that I was used to for all those years with me and Chris racing. Yeah. And, uh, right away, boom, it, it you know, it went 870 something at, you know, 159 or something like that. And, uh, that's just about the time when uh, I think I heard Scott Kelly say the NHRA uh, came in and started and, uh, you know, Nopi and um, all those uh, IDRC and all those guys were coming in, battle the imports. Yeah. They were all coming in with all the import racing, and I wanted to go play with those guys. And uh, so we went out with our, our turbo setup, and we started racing with those guys, and that didn't take long before... Uh, I hooked up with Mike Ferrara from IDRC and he helped me really to move along from the carbureted gasoline turbo setup over to an alcohol fuel injected turbo setup, which was all brand new to me. I mean, uh, without his help, I never would have been able to cross over that deal. And so sure enough, we put it together and the very first time, uh, we went out with that car, uh, we went to Denver and, uh, I went to the dyno with that thing in Denver because we had to do the tuning and it made like 750 horse to the wheel. It's pretty incredible. Well, and, and for you, I mean, and, and I wanted to get into that for a little bit. So at this time, VW drag racing, you see the import drag. And when we talked to Scott Kelly on here, the, the import drag racing scene had come out. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we've got the PRA, which is not tons of money, super limited amount of races and whatnot. And then all of a sudden the import drag racing deal comes together and there's tons of that stuff. And then the NHRA stuff. And I and, and then at that point, do you start to head to that direction because there's more races, more money, and obviously now with the technology, I mean, if if you start going over and looking at what the the modern day guys are doing, and now you're switching to, you know, 
you said alcohol turbo is what you're running alcohol injection yeah alcohol fuel injected turbo yeah i mean that's like i, I mean the, the the difference has got to be what double the almost double the horsepower if you go with the injected alcohol with a turbo versus <laughs> i mean versus like yeah. a draw through turbo setup yeah, which I still do a lot of those today because it's simple and, and the average guy can figure it out where the fuel injection even still is quite layered. And, you know, some people would advocate that it's simpler, but it's, it's, it's absolutely not. These cars never came with any sort of injected anything and everything was analog. And, you know, if you've ever looked under the hood of any Volkswagen, the wiring's pretty lame. Even if you come up with uh, wiring yourself, fuel injection with all of the sensors and, and everything reading magnetic signals and, ohms and millivolts and stuff like that you know it doesn't really play well when the wiring's not righteous and sadly a lot of guys don't pay much much attention to the wiring when they do fuel injection and so they end up in trouble but with my deal yeah when i got out of that car uh when i when I started racing for nhra uh, with the bothell guys uh, in sport compact that thing was making 850 of the wheels but you know back in that back in the time there was no control. I didn't have control over a lot of the uh, power delivery, and there was no boost controllers to speak of. I mean, there was, but they were play school. Um, you know, it was like a light switch. And I remember Jeff Payne, uh, we went back to uh, E-Town in, in New Jersey, and I remember Jeff Payne coming, uh, he went with us on the trip, mm-hmm. and he was like, dude, he goes, that thing's insane. He's like, you're wheeling, and the smoke is coming off the rear tires and third gear, and I'm all about <laughs> I'm all, man, I'm just trying to hang on, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it was, it, it was a wild, it was certainly a wild ride. That, that car, um, the best I could get that car to run just because I had no control was like 842 at 173 miles an hour. And I, I just, I wish I, if I could have a shot at it now with all the modern, uh, boost controller stuff, plus my Rev6 clutch stuff now. I mean, again, when I dropped the hammer on that thing, it was just game on, and it was like riding a bull or something, you know, just go, go, go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane to think of, it's almost like you had the technology with none of the control, so it was like from <laughs> from from raindrop to fire hydrant is what you're going to, and you have, and, yeah. and now you think of the, the milliseconds of control that boost controllers, ignition timing control, all that stuff that you can pre-program. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's incredible. Um, now, talk to me about when you when you kind of because for a while there you kind of spent some more time on the import drag racing scene than in the in the VW scene. Am I right, or were you trying to do both? Well, I I, I think for the listener, I think I think they need to understand that even though I was uh, racing actively in all in all the import series that I could, which meant a lot of traveling because. You know, it wasn't just West Coast. I mean, literally, I had to drive all the way across the country to Florida, to New Jersey, to Norwalk, Ohio. I mean, I had to go to all these places because that's where the events were. Sure. And they were handing out big big money and big purses. And uh, even though I was doing all that, my day job, every day, all day, all the time, was coming back here and making all the parts that I have, innovating new parts for years. Um, I didn't abandon or step out or step away. I know... To some folks, it might have seemed like I was MIA. Right. But I was still building, servicing, taking care of all of the customers, the legacy guys that, um, you know, were, were all my people back then. I was sponsoring events, sponsoring cars, and just building and just developing all kinds of new stuff. But when I was out racing, my biggest, I'll tell you what, uh, 
that new beetle that I raised, I, to, to give you an idea of what I was up against. Mm-hmm. So here I am with my, my new beetle, right? Alcohol fuel injection beetle, basically rear engine, much shifted car. Pretty basic, really, when compared to some of these other cars. My nemesis that I used to race against, Carlos Monteo, he had a Mazda rotary engine <laughs> in a Datsun with a 9-inch rear end, a clutchless Liberty tranny, and nitrous. So that, that was the guy that I, that I had to race against at almost every event. And for some reason or another, I would get sideways or get out of shape and have to let off. Or I could have beat him. I'm thinking back if I could have just had some more control over the car. And I, I was trying like hell to get the control over the car. But without the advent of some of this other modern stuff, I just it, it just wasn't in the cards, you know. And so now, even back then in the in the import racing scene, when you're so you're running the Beetle, the the, the new Beetle, and you're thinking like, man, I, I can't get this any further. And then you, the, then do you become sponsored after that? Like, do you get... Well, what happened was, um, Chad Daly worked for me at the time, and a guy named Kid and Steve Yoder, and we were already going to all the events, and, and we had, and I was sponsored by Magnaflow at the time, this is right when they were deciding which way to spend their money, with Mario Andretti or Ron Loomis, you know? <laughs> right. I there are a bunch of Italian guys, and, and so since Sophia Loren wasn't available, they, I think they were with Mario, and I think it was a good choice, yeah. Yeah. Um... But I was putting my pitch to them to build a new car. And then at some point, Steve Bothwell reached out to me and he said, hey, uh, uh, and I'd seen him at the import races, you know, he'd race for GM and, and uh, he, you know, it was pretty Nelson Hoyos was driving for him. And uh, he had quite a, quite a lot of, uh, of crew. And he was, you know, when he showed up, he pretty much knew it. Yeah. And uh, he called me one day and he says, hey, uh, I'd like you to come drive my race car. I'm like, seriously? That's and crazy. he's like, yeah. I'd like you to come drive my race car. And he told me what they were doing. It was going to be a front-wheel drive Pontiac Sunfire. And uh, I saw the other driver that they'd had for one of their other cars. And I'm like, okay, um, do I need to come see you? And he's like, no, I'll, I'll actually come see you because I have another project I want you to do. And so he came down and started talking to me about building a couple of show cars for General Motors. And they had uh, – it was – before Wally had passed on and, and it was uh, in the height of the NHRA explode deal. And they had uh, a Pontiac uh, Cavalier that they did. It was a front wheel drive car. Right. And so they want, they wanted me to build two identical show cars that General Motors could take on the circuit. And so he sat down with me and uh, basically dropped me a honking check. And off I was building cars. And then somewhere in the middle of that, we started uh, moving towards me driving uh, their car and it it's it, uh, t- talk about a journey and the people you meet uh, i tell you what uh, my life has been colored by uh, some awesome people that you know would otherwise been in black and white if they hadn't stepped into my life and uh, steve bothwell is definitely Gil, his brother steve um, you know wally all those guys uh they're just golden guys and I, I had the chance to hang out with some, some real heroes in my life and what's the <laughs> i mean is is it like going from like little league to the big leagues overnight when when oh you're, you're you're like you're the you're the driver the pit crew the mechanic the tire guy like you're yeah. everything one day <laughs> and the next day you're just the driver like what's that yeah. what's that experience like and 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 how's that like that's got to feel good right all these years of drag racing to finally pay off and someone to recognize your talent you know I tell you what. It, it, it was surreal for me, but I'm a man of faith, and what sealed it for me was um, 
we were at one of the uh, races, uh, the import races, and we were in Phoenix at Firebird. And uh, I saw, I was looking across the pit, and I saw Bothwell praying with one of the gals uh, that was his driver before they would get into the car and go race. And I thought, you know, that that guy's that guy's somebody I, I really admire for just being so open about his faith. And so when it came time for him asking me, I already knew what I was stepping into. And uh, yeah, so for me. Um, the direction, the, the guiding light for me was like, man, there's nothing telling me no. So right. when this guy asks me, hey, do you want to come drive one of my cars? I'm like, sheesh, are you kidding me? Getting paid to drive? That's, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so like, yeah, when you're the chief cook, the bottle washer, the, <laughs> right. uh, the waiter, you know, the, the butt boy, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll drive that car. I'll get paid for it. And uh, i tell you what, uh, when you get paid to fly in, and they won't even let you work on the car. And he tells you that your job is to drive and I don't want you working on the car. I'm like, but I, I'm not, but I like to work on cars. He said, well, that's not why you're here. So, um, it was just a surreal deal. He had all the people and he had the crew. I mean, the, 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 the car showed up in an 18 wheeler. The crew would fly in. Um, that's how big the sport compact deal was. I mean, Basically, there was all these 18 wheelers in the pits, kind of like the big time stuff. Sure. And, you know, we fly in and race. And then that Sunday night or the Monday morning, uh, sometimes we'd fly back out and come home. And then, you know, I'd get, I'd get a pretty good sized check in the mail. <laughs> you're, and, uh, you're making more money drag racing than your fab shop, probably on some weekends. <laughs> and it's like, you, you know, it's yeah. got to be yeah. a, a feeling of like, you know, like almost like, one foot in a dreamland and then one foot in reality yeah. of your shop and your guys and all that stuff that you've got to keep going. And then. Yeah. Well, Steve Bothwell was such a cool guy, but he, he always reminded us that, you know, everything was temporary and that you, we may never pass this way again. Uh, so enjoy it. Enjoy the journey. And uh, he couldn't have been more right about a lot of things. I tell you what, I learned so much from that man and, and the other company that he kept. I mean, I got introduced to all the engineers from Garrett Turbos, and we're still friends to this day. To this day. Um, you know, at the time, I was sponsored by another turbo company when I, when I had my Beetle. And when the Garrett guys, uh, because I was doing both at the same time, uh, racing for myself just at the tail end and uh, driving the race car, the Garrett engineers really opened my eyes up about a lot of things that I always thought I knew. But, you know, imagine you think you know something, and you thought you even proved it, so there's no reason to talk about it. And then sure. all of a sudden, the, the engineers say, hey, they asked you this question. And you're like, yeah, sure. And, and then they say, well, how do you know? And then you say, well, because of X, Y. And then they tell you something else, and you're like, oh, I guess I don't know. Right. So they really they really opened my eyes about a lot of things. And uh, I got a pretty steep education just by more keeping my mouth shut and my ears open and just kind of paying attention to what – was going on around me. You know, one of the things I told you that Steve Bucklow was an incredible, is an incredible guy. Uh, when when we went as a team and raced that year at Sunfire, I raced that car competitively for two years. And in two years of racing that car, I was in every final round of racing in two years except for one. Really? And yeah, every final round except for one in two years of racing that car for, for Bothwell. And that, I'm not saying that to say, hey, look at me. What I'm saying is those guys were rocket scientists. Those guys were wicked smart. That, that crew and that team, yeah, I drove the car. Um, a lot of people probably said I did that, but that was just how incredible they were. 
And to, to hang out with guys like that and to learn, uh, I mean, I, the guy who invented race pack, uh, was good friends with Bothwell and, and he's coming, uh, in the, the trailer, uh, talking about race pack stuff that was on the car. I mean, these are the kind of people, X track transmissions, um, uh, Ed Hansen did all the motors. I mean, there were some incredibly wicked smart guys that I just got to talk to on a normal basis. And I, I that's a large part of why today I, I've had such success with a lot of things because of what these guys were speaking into my ears at the time. Well, and I think, you know, the VW industry for so long, and you've heard, if you listen to any of the podcasts, the VW industry always starts out like in this homegrown angle, right? And and they'll come mm-hmm. up to you and they're like, well, why are you using a lawnmower turbo on that car? Do you know the impeller size and the and the vane pitch and this? And you're like, uh, we just know it's a turbo. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? But it's it, it it's so much that it starts that way and then you get lucky enough to actually, like I said, because it's like the VW scene is is like a homegrown, we'll figure it out on our own because no one's making product for us. So the enthusiast then becomes the manufacturer and 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 being able to have the opportunity to see that stuff, I mean, I, I think some of that is what's, uh, you know, contributed to some of the evolution in drag racing where, you know, as much as it was a homegrown thing, if you want to be really fast, yeah. now it's next level stuff. Yeah, and I tell you what, um, remember I said to you earlier that people might have thought I was MIA. Well, my day job, take care of my wife, my kids, and, you know, pay for the rent on the building that I'm in and all that stuff, I still had to come back here Monday through Friday and do my day job, which was making race cars, making race cars, innovating a lot of things. And so what I decided to do was, I, I since I was paying attention and being the kind of dude I am, I decided to take what I'd learned and put it in that technology and, and all that leading-edge stuff and put it in the products that I either was making already or products that I needed to make. So in that vein, I came up with a lot of new products because, I mean, once you're exposed, it's like, what are your influences? Once I was exposed to those guys and saw what was capable, I'm like, wow, I mean, this is the sky, you know, the sky's not the limit. Right. And then I started building, you know, all kinds of new products. And, and again, Monday through Friday, here I was making new products, putting life back into what I was doing as a passion to keep that grassroots alive because there was a lot of people who still the passion because it was their hobby, not their living. To have this cool beetle, this bug, this type three, this bay window glass, whatever it was, and they wanted to pick it up. They wanted to go high performance. They wanted to go turbo. They wanted to lower it. They wanted to do a narrow beam. They wanted to bolt and low bar. They, you know, I invented the Rev6 clutch to come along and just use that technology to try to breathe it into the Volkswagen deal to make it better. Because, like it or not, this is who this. I mean, I just say like it or not. This is who I am. Right. You know, when you when you Google on limits. All that comes up is Volkswagen. So yeah, listen, I've been my good. Identity, my identity I, gets lost in all this Volkswagen stuff. You know, if I didn't, even if I didn't even like it, which I do love and I have a passion for it, but I tell you what, it's, uh, it's I have to pitch myself sometimes. Yeah, it's a lot of work on your own business and you got to deal with a lot. Of, but I can't imagine me doing, well, I can imagine me doing one other thing, but we won't talk about that right now. But, uh, um, my passion every day, I get to live out and I get to do it. It's, uh, it is surreal. It's pretty cool. And that's got to be – and so now the difference between drag racing a four-speed Volkswagen versus you get into this – I'm assuming the Sunfire is automatic, fuel-injected, rev – like all, the cutting, the highest cutting-edge yeah, technology. Yeah, it, it, 
No, it was it was gear shifted. It had an X track like a rally cross training. You had to still hit the hammer. Oh, sequential. Yeah. And so, how? What is? What was the biggest difference you noticed? Like. And what are some of the things that you start saying, I'm bringing that to Volkswagens. I'm bringing this to Volkswagens. What's one of the first innovations that you started that you drug over from like the import drag racing stuff and started implementing it to some of your, some of your racing things? Well, first of all, like with this front wheel drive car, one of the things, the big difference was with the Volkswagen, the motor's hanging out back and your wheels up all the time. Well, obviously it doesn't happen in a front wheel drive car. But what does happen, and I can tell you is that multi-years of technology of the four-valve, water-cooled-style engine would, like, for instance, this, okay, so my deal made, my 2.7-liter motor made 850-horse-ish, let's just say, um, with the boost level that I was at in the car that I had, well, the Sunfire that I drove for Bockwell had 1,300 horsepower. Holy cow. And, yeah, and it was a front-wheel drive Ecotech motor with an X-Track transmission. The, I, I, with that car, I ended up running 770 flat at 193. It went, in the eighth mile, it was running like a 512 at 142, 143 miles an hour, something like that. Wow. Yeah. So one of the big things about, uh, actually I'm looking at the time stuff now is 140. Actually, no, wait a minute. I went 153 with that car in the eighth mile. Sorry. 512 at 153. In eight miles. So zero to and 153 one, mile an hour in, in, an, in an eighth mile distance. Yeah. And one of the big differences between driving a rear drive car that's a gear shifted car um, to driving that front wheel drive car, from the second that clutch licked the flywheel and I dropped the hammer, that motor was just off. I mean, 1,300 horsepower and you were just banging gears and it was like an arm wrestling contest. Can you imagine 10 and a half inch wide tires? Connected to a spool in the front of the car. I mean, oh, hell, yeah. you can't even hardly you can't even hardly steer the thing because it's, it's the, the steering wheels are, have got the slicks in the spool. So yeah, it's like a yeah, torque that, steer, like crazy. It was insane, dude. It was just just it was just wicked insane. But the technology that I got to see and the turbo technology and a lot of the electronic uh, technology or how to control things that I I told you already. I I didn't have. I wasn't privy to at the time. But there was a whole bunch of electronic stuff that they, these guys, Bockwell, uh, and a guy named Kurt, uh, invented to try to make these cars respond. Uh, you know, the CO2 boost controllers, yeah. uh, where no one, Kurt, the guy that was racing with us at Bockwell, invented all that stuff. Wow. Um, uh, let's see, there's all kinds of different electronic stuff he had on the car. Some of it I can't even talk about, but, um, just the CO2 boost controller was something that he invented. Um, now talk to me about, so, for our listeners, explain what a CO2 boost controller is. Okay, so normally boost control means the wastegate on a turbocharger opens and closes to let off pressure uh, in the uh, heat, mainly, but we'll just say pressure in the exhaust pipe. So on a turbo motor, you have boost uh, that goes in the manifold that you read on your gauge, but there's also a boost level in the exhaust pipe. And the wastegate is in charge of letting that either open or close to regulate how much boost because the exhaust impeller will actually drive the intake impeller that makes the boost in the first place. So the boost number that you're always reading is connected to the exhaust. Well, sometimes the boost pressure in the exhaust gets so high that the valve itself will actually just get pushed open by the back pressure. So, for instance, and what this is one of the things I told you that I found out with my Beetle, 
because they asked me, hey, is your wastegate closed? And I said, sure, it's closed. Well, how do you know? <laughs> so if I had 30 pounds of boost on my new Beetle uh, motor on the intake side, so that's the boost gauge in the car. Right. I have two boost gauges. The boost gauge that I had uh, for the exhaust, which I hardwired into the exhaust collector before the turbo, it was 70 PSI. Holy cow. In the exhaust. And that was, yeah, that was the technology of the company that I was sponsored by before I went to Garrett. What they encouraged me to do was they encouraged me to change the exhaust housing because the popular deal at the time was a really small exhaust housing. They encouraged me to go to a bigger exhaust housing and then close that wastegate. And once I did that, that's when it went from 750 horse to 850 horse. But that was boost control. One of the things, and I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have CO2 boost control at that time, but when we got to the Sunfire, that's when they were inventing all this stuff. And basically, a CO2 was just a controlled compressed gas that you would put as air pressure on top of the wastegate diaphragm to hold the valve shut so that the pressure in the exhaust pipe couldn't push it open. And so now, it's a pretty common thing. Everybody, oh, yeah, CO2 boost control is a common thing now. But back then, 2002, 2003, uh, 2004, uh, you know, that, that wasn't... Uh, that wasn't common at all. These guys were pioneering that stuff. And in the VW world, it was always like, you know, get the biggest intake valve you can. Who cares about the exhaust valve, big intake valve? And you're saying yeah. that changes your method of thinking in regards to intake exhaust valve variation. Yeah. Because yeah. you've got to get, you know, the turbos fed off the exhaust. So you got to keep, you're building pressure, but you've also got to get it out as well. That's right. And what most people didn't understand, and even some guys today still don't understand, is that if you just simply do nothing, uh, then what happens is the pressure in the exhaust will build up to the point where all the work that you're doing, which in the exhaust pipe is the work that makes the compressor drive, you know, in the turbo, you let it go right out the exhaust of the wastegate, then it's not going through the turbo. And when it's doing that, it's not spinning the turbo, making the boost to make power. Yeah, so, it's like it's like trying to blow up an inflatable thing with a hole in it. You know what I mean? You're well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's insane. But you know, it's so funny because in our in our homegrown technology, the VW scene, people are just like, "No, you want more boost, rev it higher. You want more boost, do this." But it's like, how many of those guys all those years were bleeding off 50, 60 horsepower out of the wastegate yeah. being wedged open because of exhaust pressures? Yeah, well, if you wanted more boost, you put a smaller exhaust housing on, right? Right, right. And, and, and it seemed contrary, like, you know, uh, like Carl, uh, one of the, the, my good friends that has a race car, it actually runs really fast. Um, on his little 2275, we've got a, uh, just a Garrett TO4, just a regular walk a day turbo. And, uh, we've got like a 1.06 exhaust housing on that thing. Yeah. And, uh, but the thing is, we make sure the wastegate stays closed. And when the wastegate stays closed, it has no problem making boost, and it certainly makes a gob of power for what it is. It's, it's basically a DIN buggy motor without the fan shroud on it, and we go race with it. It runs like 590s in the eighth mile, 121. That's insane. That's yeah. insane. And it, yeah, and it's just, it's, again, you asked earlier, I told you, this is just gleaning from those brilliant people that I got to hang around with and putting that technology back into what we're doing. I like the question answer the Red Six. I mean, if I had never been exposed to um, different clutches and different things that were uh, being used in, in more of a professional environment, I never would have probably had the wherewithal to, to know even what to do to try to get some of these uh, clutch things hammered out. And so in 2010, 
I designed and made uh, the Web6 Clutch to be able to handle the delivery of the power that we're now making because of all the technology through the same old, same old tranny. And you couldn't just put any clutch in there because you'd blow the axles up, you'd blow the main shaft up. Um, basically, you split the case in two pieces. So once I came out with the Rev 6, where it would actually centrifugally add more clamping power as the RPMs went up, its first thought as a clutch was basically to slip and then to hook. And I mean, I've sold over 300 units. And, and, you know, it's just incredible. I never thought in a million years that I would. I thought they were just going to be exclusively race car guys. But, again, just being able to take that technology and package now, it. Now, let's know? let's bring it down for our listener level because I'm the listener and you're losing me a little bit. But I want to understand how the Rev6 technology works. So Well, normally, normally in, in, the, in the bell housing interval side, we have a 200 millimeter single stage clutch with a pressure plate. And you, you know, by the common nomenclature of the day, you've got a stage one, a stage two, or a stage three. Right. And then you have your different discs that you use, and that's what pretty much what you got. Well, at the time, basically, uh, if you tried running all of those or any of those combinations, you would either split the training in half if you tried to make the clutch to hold the power that you were making. So let's just say you were making four or five hundred horsepower and you dropped the clutch and you got to stage something in there with a, some kind of a puff disc. And it's so violent that it just breaks the train in half. But if you back off on the clutch pressure to stage one, let's just say, it'll just blow through the clutch. And there's, there, was, there was no solution. So right, cause, what cause, I decided cause... to do was try to take the technology, come up with a clutch that would, by nature, slip and then grab. So what I did was I, I came up with, instead of an 8-inch disc, which is 200 millimeters roughly, I came up with like a 160-millimeter clutch. And so that's basically like roughly like six inches ish. And then I made it dual disc, and then I made it so that when I put the thing together, the actual top cover has these centrifugal uh, little rock arms, I call them. And so as the RPM increases, it adds uh, the clamping pressure that's needed to hold the, the uh, clutch at a higher RPM. And I packaged it in a way where it will all fit inside of the Volkswagen bell housing so that, in fact, if you had a stock, transmission it would still fit in there so you can put this full race clutch into even a stock transmission bell housing and what some of the stuff that i got out of it uh, which was a byproduct and i didn't actually think of designing it actually in there mm-hmm. was the pedal pressure is lighter than stock um, is it really the throw yeah it's like you could like in my bay window bus i had my my bay window bus is turbocharged and you can go to my bus open the door and take your left hand and push down on the clutch pedal with your hand it's just that light Wow. And that was just, I, I got, I, that was a freebie. I didn't actually set up and design that part of it, but that's the way it ended up. Because of the leverage and the geometric clutch, it releases uh, about 40% less uh, clutch movement is necessary. So your, 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 your clutch actually gets to disengage with your hand at the right speed. You can speech it better. Um, I actually came out with a version later on that uh, um, is a Street 6, which has organic discs in it, so that the guys, which is what I have in my bus, which is so that street guys can drive around with this clutch too, because I mean, let's face it, if you have a really nice car with a really big motor, and let's just say you even have like some of these buses that people are driving around now that have three, four, five on a horsepower, do you want to go drive in traffic with a stage three clutch? No, nobody does. I mean, you, you know, I, I tell you what, if you think about the seating position in a bus, it's like sitting at the chair at the table in your kitchen, or in, your, in your kitchen. Right. It's not like sitting in a beetle where you're pushing away from yourself. You're basically pushing down. You're sitting, you're sitting upright in the bus. So there's no leverage for you to push the pedal down. 
So just pretty incredible. And, you know, just things like that that I've had the, the, uh, the wherewithal to just bring back to our market and to be able to offer people so that they can have a better experience, you know, less broken trannies, uh, more laps at the racetrack, you know, better streetcars, all this stuff. So well, realistically, me, you know, yeah. the, the damage that you see happening in most transmissions is from the shock going through yeah. and starting to tear it apart. And so, yeah. with with the design of this Rev Six, it's it's like a it's a progressive clamping system that absolutely is what I'm by trying nature, to. Yeah, yeah by but, nature, it's first it's first action is to slip first because of the way it's designed, and then to grab. So it lets everything get loaded first before actually applying the power. Even that's kind of progressive because of the centrifugal arms there in there. And and you're saying because of the design using two discs. Um, would, would you have, let's say, would you advise against this in a street application or if somebody's got, let's say a hopped up 2332 street turbo, maybe, maybe, which is in my opinion, some people may argue with me, let's say it's a 13 second street car, which is a fast Volkswagen for the street. Would you recommend this clutch system and this clutch system compared to a traditional clutch system? Would you expect, cause it's, it's more money. But would you expect yeah. – you're, you're obviously going to have – everybody's at the tw- – everybody that buys the Stage 3 Kennedy, I don't care who you are, <laughs> after a year or two driving the street, you go to the Stage 2 because it's just like, man, I'm sitting at the light and my leg's about to cramp up from holding the clutch pedal down or I've snapped clutch cables or I've bent Bowden tubes and it's it's gone this backwards way. So would you say if someone spent the money for this, they would expect to get longer clutch life out of something like this? Yeah, so so you're not just a pretty face, honestly. You really actually understand the conversation you're having with me right now. You completely get it. Um, it, it there's a lot of folks that don't um, know a lot of the intricate details, some of the things you just said. But yeah, uh, so imagine uh, when you have to step. Your first question was um, basically, you know, if a 13 second guy needed. I, I say this: when you have to go beyond stage one. Now look, hey, who wants to spend more money? Then they need to spend only a really small portion of guys. But right. the reality is when the guys end up um, purchasing a rep six, it's because they've already dropped probably a thousand dollars at least minimum in all these other pieces of training, broken training pieces, broken clutch pieces, or they're so frustrated. Uh, and they, they've taken the motor out of their, their really nice streetcar like to the umpteen time and they're over it already. So at that point, they're just looking for the answer. Yeah. And when you have to step beyond the stage one, and then you go to the stage, what, let's just say stage whatever, um, you know, then, then, like you said, a lot of those things, the Bowden tube, the, the clutch cross shaft brakes, the, the cable snaps. Yeah. Um, the rear, the rear main bearing gets wore out in the motor. No one starts to calculate that when they go, oh, it's Saturday. I got to tighten my clutch cable up again because I just keep stretching the cable. It's like, (laughs) it's like, it's not part of the process. It should be like, set it and forget it. You know what I mean? And yeah. And and in large part, that's, that's the deal. And, you know, we're all getting older. You know, we talked about the history going back, going back, going back. You know, look, the average age of the average Volkswagen enthusiast is, is going, uh, on the upward scale, so it's going up, yeah. up, up. And the last thing in the world, a lot of these guys, excuse me, a lot of these guys want to do. Not bad manners, just get to. Um, a lot of the things, a lot of these these guys, they don't want to work on their cars like they used to. I mean, let's face it, getting down on the ground, crawling under your car, is not something that you want to do at fifty to sixty that you used to do when you were twenty to thirty. It right. doesn't work like that anymore. So 
you're happy to pay for righteous parts, but you just need to know that the part is righteous because, let's face it, everybody says, oh, yeah, I got the right part, or, you know, this is the magic deal, or, you know, I'm the best, or whatever, you know. So, well, I, I mean, everybody says that on the front side, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, everybody would say, oh, yeah, you just get the old Washington anti-shocker or whatever, and, and that's, yeah. you know, 1971 technology, and and what happens in the, in again in our hobby turned business arena not a lot yeah. of guys get the experience where they get to look at clutch setups like you do and then everybody goes oh it'd be too expensive to manufacture why waste your time no one will ever do it for the VW scene and then you go out on a limb go into development on a product like this and i think the key component is getting the word out because from my from my impression when i saw it i thought oh yeah it's a drag race clutch I would never need anything like that, but but I'll tell you, my bus. I have I of course there's listeners out there that wait for me to bring up one of my cars, and I have the Bull Run bus, and I have the Carbon Cab. My Carbon yeah. Cab has a 2.6 liter Type Four that Adam Adam Wick built for me, and I've got I'm running 48s on it because why not, right? So a 2.6 liter yeah. Type Four, and I've got seven and a half inch. Uh, 225, 17 inch tires. I mean, big meats in the back. And listen, I drive, I drive a bus with a Type Four because I love low end torque and it just pushes that bus like nothing. But I also like to be a donkey every now and again and do a big nasty burnout. And <laughs> and what I've used in the past was I have like a stage two pressure plate and a stock. 200 millimeter clutch, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I get in there and it's nice for driving on the street whatever. But I tell you what, there was one time I was doing a photo shoot for somebody. I said, "Oh, are you ready for a big burly burnout?" And I was like, "And it was smoking like crazy, but it, the tires weren't moving." I dropped the Uh-oh. clutch because there's so much torque in that Type Four, and it was a hot day, and it was uh, it was a real sticky street, and I just started spinning the clutch. And what's happened is, once the clutch gets worn, and I do a couple aggressive burnouts. I start to lose my clamping force and the clutch gets glazed over and now I got to kind of drive it cool for a little bit. But now I'm looking at this clutch and I'm like, man, maybe I want one of these clutches because it, it'd be nice where if I like to do a little burnout, I'm not going to sit there and spin clutch because the back of that bus is a little bit heavy and those tires are real big. But I, you know, I want to be able to have the power and if I want to be a donkey and do some big nasty burnouts, why not, you know? Yeah, one of the things about the Red Six that I that has been coming up over and over again is that it makes the car fun to drive again. You know, yeah. if you hop in any modern car, you know, and, you, and the shifting is easy, um, the pedals push down real easy. You know, it's that it's just a very friendly thing to drive. And for so many years with all these old cars, you know, the only answer was to just put more pressure plate at them. Right. And when that didn't work, then that then you were just you were done. You had this big Aggressive chatter, disc, and stuff. I mean, I like my black magic clutch disc, right? So that's one of the dropping things that I've had forever, you know. Um, it's just a regular centered iron eight inch disc that I've uh, had for the last 30 years. I, I, I know the, uh, one of the kids that, uh, his uncle owned one of the big clutch companies and I got exposed to that stuff even in the late 80s when I got started. So I took that clutch disc and I hubbed it up and I put it in. Uh, to these cars, and so the Black Magic has been a savior for a lot of cars and a lot of trannies. Um, but even still, when you end up at the end of the Black Magic, it's still an aggressive uh, centered iron disc. But you know, I've got some fan guys back east that are buying a lot of these discs because they've got a stage whatever with a, a six clock in there, 
and yeah. their cars just blow right through the six bus. And they, and the, the, these guys have put the black magic in there, and you know they're they're happy. They don't have to take the motor out anymore. It just laughs and laughs and laughs. So I think that's one of the things that I've always been about. Is it's like I don't I, I don't want to work on my cars any more than I have to. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So whenever I come up with something or or I put something to market. I try as hard as I can to test it and to make sure that it's righteous first. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many black magic discs I've sold. It's just, it's insane. It seems to be the only thing, you know, that you can spend only a couple hundred bucks on that will, if in the drag racing sense or in the big power sense or big torque sense, uh, cure a common problem. And then beyond that, just install rep six after that. Well, and when you're talking technology and, and VW's catching up with technology, you're looking at some of the new Porsches. They've got, you know, all the new Porsches have electronic controlled fuel injection, yeah. electronic controlled, igni- you know, electronic crank fire ignition. And now if you start going to dual clutch setups, because there's factory cars with dual clutch setups, because again, oh, yeah. you're creating yeah. more power and you're wanting to be able to have that, that power transfer. So I think in reality, you know, as, as we, you know, I'm 40. Uh, Today's my birthday, and I turned today. I turned four, hey, <laughs> and I turned forty-eight today. But I, I still have my Volkswagens, and I like to drive them. But it's like I just changed a shifter out. Uh, I had a, I had a Bug Tech shifter in my crew cab, and it looked so cool. But it, like, just driving the car was such an ordeal because it wasn't, you know, it was difficult to get in gear. It didn't, you know, it just, it just didn't feel right. So it's like, you know, I love one car, let's say performance more than the other, but the other one's more comfortable. So I just drive the other, I drive my other bus, my bull run bus, which is a later model, thinner seat, more laid back, smooth shifting, less power, but it's more fun to drive. And so I agree. You know, and now, and now guys in our age, we're, we're getting to where we're not working at Seven Eleven anymore. We've got a few bucks. People can spend a little more money. You know what I mean? Get, we can get the motor built we want. We can get the trip. I mean, the last three cars I've built, Volkswagens have all had Berg five speeds. Why? Why not? You know what I mean? If it's like, because right. I'm the right. kind of guy where I look at like, okay, I could spend 1500 bucks or two grand on a tranny right or i could spend you know 4500 bucks five grand on a berg five speed and now i actually have a five i'm not in the in the realm of wanting another gear and it's kind of cool and then everybody's like oh, and then i think like why would anybody do anything besides a five speed if you're building a street car you know what i mean and right. you know the 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 technology's there and i think the demographic of the vw crew is moving up and and they're not afraid to spend 1200 bucks for a dual clutch setup and have pedal pressure lighter than stock and to be able to contain, yeah. you know, 200 horsepower on the street in a little four cylinder car, you know? Yeah. No, yeah, that's- no, exactly. And that's the evolution that I've seen as the age has gone up and the average consumer and the enthusiast is still the enthusiast in the health. If you're a Volkswagen guy, you're always going to be a Volkswagen guy. Yeah, you may have your water cooled street driver, but your choice for your hobby on the weekend is going to be an air-cooled VW. And again, like I told you about my humble beginnings of being a gearhead, motorcycle, crazy guy, um, I basically gravitated towards Volkswagens, and I mean, I got bit by the bug, and then I changed my whole life, you know? Yeah. So what am I going to say, you know? I mean, like I said, I'm blessed. I've been very, very, very grateful that I've been able to do this and still have the passion for doing it today. 
that I've had the whole time. And things have changed, yeah, but I don't look at them in the terms of, you know, people always ask me, hey, are you going to get behind the wheel of a car again? Are you going to build a new car? Are you going to do this? And I just thought, yeah, that'll come someday, but i got to get the kids through school and all that stuff, which it's the same thing as my customers, you know? Sure, sure. I've seen them, I've seen them through. I mean, if they came to me in, in the late 80s and early 90s, and then now they've got the empty nest, and, you know, now they're looking to, to, to have the car they always wanted. <laughs> they're going to they finally spend you know? spend the money on the motor. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it, it feels good to be able to, like you said, nobody wants to work in their cars, so we want to spend the money up front, get the quality we're expecting, Yeah. be able to go out yeah. on a Saturday after you worked hard, and you want to just take your bug on a cruise. and. You know, when when we were nineteen, it was cool to smell tires burning on the back of headlights and oil burning and <laughs> and and carbs popping and all that stuff. But we're not eighteen, yeah. nineteen anymore, and and yeah. nobody's got a stinger on anymore. And we're all, you know what I mean? Like we're all e- evolving. But I, I think it's uh, I think it's rad what you're doing. I one of the things I wanted to touch bases about too is 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 your your national distribution for uh, vintage speed parts. Talk to yeah. me as a fabricator because the first thing everybody says is oh you know taiwan and then you're american homegrown fabricator yeah what's it like when you first see some vintage speed parts and what what gives you this passion like hey these guys are building some great quality stuff i want to connect how does that how does that unfold well there's a couple things i mean some of the things like i said i've collected over the years um some of the best things i've heard uh, you mentioned the five speed. I mean, Jim Berg was a wicked smart dude. Um, I remember at his funeral, uh, I don't remember which one of his boys said it, but something to the effect of, um, arguing with his dad and then in, in, in a, in a moment of, uh, trying to, uh, bring some, some joy to a celebration of life. He said, at a show of hands, how many people here have ever had an argument with Gene? And everybody in the whole <laughs> congregation raised their hand up, you know? He was a very impassioned dude about what it was that he did. And you, look, you, you could like him, love him, hate him, whatever. But like a lot of the guys that went before me, and maybe it'll be said about me after I'm gone or whatever, um, the passion for doing stuff and doing it right and having your own opinion, um, that's a cool deal. So, you know, with all the parts that I, that I make and the thing that I do and the mission that I'm on, um, it wouldn't have happened with the vintage speed situation if I hadn't have known MT first. So, Next door to me uh, for many, many years was Topline, and mm-hmm. MT and John had a, a working relationship where they were uh, working together to get the vintage speed products uh, distributed out here in the United States, you know, in, in the North Americas. And um, I actually built a car for MT, and so I knew him. Uh, MT is the owner of Vintage Speed, and I knew him so from that. And so because I already had a relationship with him, I mean, you kind of already know what kind of a guy you're dealing with. And sure. then, so John decided he was, John was winding top line down, uh, you know, going into more of a semi-retirement. He gave up his big uh, unit next door here and a big rent no employees and decided to kind of scale it down so that he could do, you know, more of what he wanted to do instead of the stuff he had to do, which is, I think, where we're all headed eventually. I think um, that's the deal. But Ning came to me one day and he said, hey, uh, let's go to lunch. And so I said, okay. So we went to lunch and then he said, hey, um, this is what's going on. Are you interested in doing this? And I said, well, okay. Well, let me pray about it, which is something I always do. Sure. Went home. Wife and I talked about it, prayed about it, and came back to him like, I think about two days later. I said, yeah, sure. And so um, fast forward to now, um, what's happened is 
because I know that he's a quality-minded dude, and you've been to the events, you've been to the shows. Oh, yeah. What what amazed me the most was the people that would come up uh, and want his products. They would stand in line almost to talk to him. And what I basically noted from him was he was almost like, and I've said this multiple times, he's almost like the Taiwanese version of me. Yeah. Where he, he, he has a passion for making cool stuff. He can't help himself. He's coming up with new products all the time. And he offers a warranty. He tries as hard as he can to take care of anything. Um, like even with my stuff, you know, um, not everything that I, I, I have made a home run every time. And my gosh, right? So, and neither is he, but when, when the problem arises where there's an issue, he fixes it. No problem. He fixes it. I mean, with the catalog that he has of all the products, um, I'm, I'm, I was impressed. So I agreed to take over the mantle and, uh, it's been about a year and a half now and the sales keep going up, up, up and we're restructuring our business. Um, oh, rewind the tape a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I brought up Gene Berg earlier for this reason. Gene Berg was famous for noting that there's a lot more street guys than there are race guys. Right. And th- one of the things that I did glean from him was that, in fact, statement. And knowing that I'm a race guy and my market share is X and I look at the industry as X, I've been trying to, with that thought in mind, there's more street guys than there are race guys, to come up with parts that cross platform and that can actually make it into the street cars that these guys have and want. So when the vintage speed thing came along, I'm thinking, hey, this stuff is not drag racy stuff. It's not really necessarily American. You know, stuff. It doesn't mm-hmm. look like it. You know, it looks kind of European-ish with some kind of other deal going on. But I like it. And the more I looked at his product line, I thought, you know what? If he's going to trust me with this stuff, uh, I'll see what I can do. And so what's been happening is I've been making this slow, uh, gradual, progressive move with my company to be offering products that the same thing I did with the race car stuff is trying to get as many cool products, righteous products, into the hands of as many people as I can so that when the guys buy the stuff, they go away happy and the product works, the products fit, and, you know, we do as much of that as we can. Again, like I said, we don't always hit a home every time we step up this place, but the goal is that we do that. So uh, when he came to me and said that and I agreed to take it over, I'm like, okay, um, we, we figured out a structure, and so then I get these big bulk shipments in here, and then I'm eventually going to be distributing uh, to all the dealers here. I mean, I do it now, but uh, we're ramping it up because you can't just flip on the light switch and one day sure. all of a sudden all of a sudden you're empty, you know? Like, oh, check out what I did and overnight, you know? So it, it's a gradual move uh, towards making it better for me and the customer and everybody else. Just, if there's one thing I like doing is I like making sure the customers are taken care of it. I think Ming does too, MT. So yeah. I, as far as the, that collaboration and that partnership, I think it's a good deal. Yeah, I think it's a I, I think it's a great partnership. I mean, you're known for your uh, race car building and fabrication. Anybody really who's had a big fast race car is usually on a Ron Loomis chassis, and so you know I think that the fact that here you are, American fabricator, chassis builder, and you you look at this product and you say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll distribute this product. It's good enough to be run through my shop because I remember seeing yeah. some of the first display setups and really looking at the, 
the welding on the exhaust systems and the design of the exhaust systems. And I'm thinking like, man, you know, you know, sometimes we get product that that we get that's supposed to be a performance piece of uh, product and, yeah. we, and we look at the manufacturing of it and it's hot garbage and you're like and, and this is all we have to pick from i mean uh again to annoy some of my listeners that i always bring up one of my cars on the bull run bus when i because I, I was doing a type four and that was in 2000 i bought a stainless steel header from onendorp in germany like i i had to get i had to go to germany to get my exhaust system because everything that they made here wasn't really kind of you, you know, you could get something and fab it and modify it, but then why? When I ordered it right out of Germany, and it was a stainless steel header that all came in. It was a tuned four, uh, four into one, and it was like, you know, and people would be like, "Wow, man, where'd you get that exhaust?" I'm like, they sell them every day in Germany, you know. But sometimes, you know, different markets have different different things. And and when I saw the stuff that they were making, you know, I've 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 had a few vintage speed products on some of my cars, and yeah. I mean, I the the quality is really good. That's what impressed me the most was some of the quality of the, of the product line. Yeah, and you know, in the early days, and I, I've had this conversation with a few people since I took over this, this deal about the products that were purchased early on and some of the the things that Ming had to go through um, in just his manufacturing processes and stuff. And what and I've been to his factory. As a matter of fact, I was over there. Uh, December 21st, 2019, like right at the cusp of the summit stuff, we, we went to the open house and, uh, I saw the factory. I saw how he does what he does. And again, just, I couldn't be more impressed. And, uh, you know, like all artists, I think maybe I, I, some people might consider me an artist, you know, making this and making that. Um, I look at him as an artist, but there's a practical side to being able to package and to market and to sell. And I think he's got a really good head for that. And, um, to be honest with you, I, I'm trying to use the same, uh, philosophy that I had hanging out with the Garrett guys is trying to keep my ears closed, you know, my mouth closed, pardon me, my mouth closed and my ears open and to learn or to glean as much as I can about, uh, dis- distribution and about thinking on another level because, yeah, for the longest time I've been, you know, pumping my own products and doing my own thing in my own shop, you know, being in total control. And then here comes this other vintage speed deal and I didn't make the parts. So I had to put myself in the position of believing in the product line I'm selling. You know, much like I would when I sell a Holly product or a Race Pass product or, you know, some of the other products that I would certainly sell in the industry, some products that I wouldn't sell for, for obvious reasons, uh, unless, I, unless there was no other choice available. And I, and I know that there are certainly products like that. But, you know, I mean, how else is a guy going to keep his car alive, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look when you look at the vintage speed thing, let's take the exhaust for instance. You know, um, there are guys, and certainly more American guys or whatever, that would probably never buy a can style muffler per, per se, right? They would be like more of the merge style uh, mufflers. But there are quite a lot of guys that really don't care uh, about that. They don't know engines, they don't know performance, and even if they were told it made five less horsepower, uh, they would still choose to go with the vintage speed because if that was the case, I'm not saying that's the case, but sure. because of the fitment, because of the look, because of the sound, um, what's on their radar is not necessarily the last five horsepower that they've ever made. No, and that was one of my determining factors when I bought my first vintage speed exhaust system was that it tucks up completely in the apron yeah. and it comes out yeah. of the locations and it sounds it sounds like a merge system. You know what I mean? Like it sounds really, yeah. really good. And they, yeah. and, and you know, you look at the welding on it, the quality of the product. I mean, 
I was yeah. I was impressed by it. And if anybody doesn't have any of those products, I mean, check out Ron Loomis uh, Racing and and get you an exhaust system ordered up. I know that uh, yeah. my split window is being built right now, and and that my split has it's over at buddy's shop down in phoenix and they're finishing paint work and i've got to send them the brakes on it but i've got a 2.6 liter type 4 in that with 48s on it but what i what i'm wanting to do is a a vintage speed exhaust on that but but kind of a custom one and uh and and i know that they can do some stuff like that because i actually you know i talked to ming one time at the table and he said let me know what you need send me the dimensions that you need and they can you know it might take a little bit of time but they can custom make it the way that yeah, you want like it. I told you, he, like I told you, he's the Taiwan version of me. So yeah, all he needs is all he needs is a reason to do something cool, right? Yeah, exactly. So no, I think that I, I think it's a, I think it's a great a great fitment together with uh, you know you representing those guys here and being able to distribute their product and uh, you know it's it's a product that anybody I think would be happy to stand behind because of the quality of the workmanship that goes behind it. You know, and it's like it's led by a guy who's got the passion yeah behind. i mean that guy's got yeah. a car collection that'll make everybody everybody's head spin you know so well i i think um for the for the garden variety guy let's just say in america they would much rather either order or call or email or talk to an american dude that understands everything they're going through and everything they want sure than to try to send off some order email to another country, you know, when they can have a choice of whether they're going to email an order in and wait from, from somebody from the other country or order from someone that's in their country, someone they can call if they have an issue or a question. And I feel a lot of calls and people are stoked that there's a face and a voice and a phone number and an email that's right here that can service all their needs. And so I know it's just a matter of time. The average street guy has probably not heard of me, um, but I hope to change that with this vintage speed uh, venture that we're doing. And, um, you know, I, it's the exposure. And, and again, I mean, who who can use vintage speed products? Who can use uh, RLR products? I mean, basically, I think almost anybody, because we, we're starting to have more of a full catalog of things that nearly anybody can use. And I'm trying, like there's nobody's business, to try to make uh, this is about the best that I can make it so that I can get as many of these cool products in the hands of as many people as possible. No, and that's and, and, and the reality is the VW scene deserves it. The VW scene deserves quality products, you know, so people don't get frustrated or burnt out on the scene because they're they're trying to get yeah. their car done and, and the yeah. stuff that they're getting out of the catalog or whatever is yeah. substandard quality. So my my hat's yeah, off to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I'm thankful but, that you're doing that and and helping do this because no one's getting rich doing it, and you're doing it for the passion. You want to be able to deliver something to the VW people that's of quality, you know. Yeah, and I, when I do retire, whenever that is, um, I want to leave it better than I found it, and I think I'm on track. I know I'm on track to do that. So whenever I decide to retire and hand the mantle off to somebody else, I want to make sure that it's in good hands, that it's been taken care of, that all the uh, legacy products that I've made for the last 30 years are still available to folks, that something that I can go do more of the things that I want. I told you earlier about the things that I could see myself doing. Playing and singing is one of my passions that I could really see myself doing. Um, That's what I do when I have a few moments to spare and I can kind of do my own thing. 
Um, but yeah, during the day and, and uh, you know, making pop products and doing the, the finished speed thing, I think the evolution, kind of like, um, I know you haven't brought it up yet, but I think of the company like Impy, right? Right. So when that first happened and it was announced or you kind of heard through the grapevine that Impy was this and that, and it changed, right? It changed, the mantle had changed. And then there was a little bit of ruckus and, you know, then, then they got that straightened out and, and now, um, it appears as though everything is on the right course. My whole opinion the whole time was that when the water level rises, all boats rise with it. Right. And I think the level for a company outside this industry to see that business as something that is viable and profitable and and has life in it where it can actually elevate the deal. I say hallelujah, you know? Absolutely. I, I think it's great because we need more quality. We need more, um, just, we need more people going in the same direction in this industry. No, and they're, and you know, we, I interviewed, uh, the first CEO after the takeover of MP or after the exchange of ownership of MP. And, you know, they're, the, the the direction that the that their intention is over there is to get back to where innovate you know innovate new product but get higher quality product out there for the consumer mm-hmm. and I, I don't see how that could be a losing proposition to anybody especially if you're already the 800 pound gorilla you know I mean exactly we yeah. talked we yeah. talked about on that podcast that the VW industry has been an overlooked industry of a huge uh, market of people that uh-huh. would like to were would love to get good quality product in the VW industry. Yeah, yeah. and the fact that some companies, some investor group, is willing to, to put their money where their mouth was yeah. means, like what I've been saying, it doesn't die. It won't go away. It evolves. And with the vintage speed thing for me as a company, with the empty thing in the industry. You know, you could name say all you want, and maybe you could try to roll back history and look at the, you know, the past or da 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 da. I mean, you know what? It, you could do all that, but if I look at the things today and I look at the landscape today, I'm busier now than I've ever been. I'm making more products, and my production is higher than it's ever been. Um, I see just with the advent of some of this internet stuff, um, with the shipping barriers being broken down between countries, it's more of a global deal. You know, back in the day in the 80s and 90s and stuff, I mean, I had customers all over the world then too, but if you wanted to ship something to somebody somewhere else, that was a paperwork nightmare and very few people would want to undertake it. And first of all, you'd have the, you'd have to have the customer ready to go through the whole thing on his end of the deal himself. So that really inhibited a lot of it. But now, today, these days, it simply is a global thing. So... You know, when I tell people, and I have over the years, you know, they ask me, oh, what do you do? I race Volkswagen. Go, really? Do they do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know what I mean? So it's no. just like, yeah, I'm all like, look, you have no idea. I've been on, I don't want to say every continent racing, but I've been in a lot of places. And usually when I go, it's because of racing. And I'm, it, people have no idea. Yeah. So and, you're right. It's, and, it's a huge market that's been untapped. And even, even still to this day, no one has actually realized the open potential of this CW market. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about worldwide, I'm, I'm as we're talking, I'm just watching videos of one of my favorite cars that you built because I'm a, I love Type 34 Gears and the Type 34 Gear drag car is one of my. Yeah. Oh man, that is yeah. one of my favorite cars because 
you know, the type 34, I, I had my gray one, uh, that, yeah. that was on the cosmics that was fuel injected and all that stuff. And I sold yeah. it. I'm, I'm getting ready to start building another one. And I just love the lines on that car. And then to see one in a full drag setup is just so cool, man. I mean, that car is, is one of my favorite cars that I've, that I've seen out there, but yeah. Yeah. Watching a video of you race that thing in England. Yeah. That car has so much detail in it and every part of it. My hat's off to Peter. I mean, I built the car for Peter and it sat for a long time and then he got back on it and got the fire to do it. And then we raced it for a couple of years. Actually, we, we uh, started running that car in 2010. And then he said it could get painted when it ran its first eight-second pass. So we ran an eight-second pass, which was his goal. And then he painted it. And then after that, we went like an 84, like, you know, 159 or something like that. But uh, Peter, being the quintessential German dude and being a, a total German purist, he wanted to make sure that it was a mag block and a, a you know, mag in the case and mag transmission case, you know, it had to be a Volkswagen Volkswagen. If it could possibly be anything Volkswagen, it was going to be Volkswagen. No aftermarket stuff that he could help it, you know. Right. Or some things he had to, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, he stuck to his guns on that deal and, uh, it, it hauled the mail. And so now I think he's, he's already achieved his goal, uh, and he's, uh, he's happy to just let the thing be a display right now. But, you know, again, same thing. I've been a lot of places, um, I've been all, all over the planet racing, and the people are the same wherever I go. They're cool. Even, you know, Taiwan, Germany, Japan, uh, you know, all over through Europe, um, you know, Hawaii. I mean, the people are the same. They just they have a passion for VW. And, you know, I always remember that when I come back here to go to work every day, when I get to travel and do my thing, you know. It's, uh, I don't know. Like I said, I've been blessed, and it's been a pretty cool deal. I, I, I see that there's a lot of life left in this deal, and I, I just... I don't know, where's the next new product going to come from? You know, where's the next new cool thing going to come from, you know? Well, and I mean, we know that with your uh, with your passion behind it, there's a good probability you could be coming out with something. I mean, who else did the Rev 6 clutch, right? That's a pretty – that's a pretty yeah. – I mean, it's pretty it, – it, if no one understands the groundbreaking transition that that makes from a performance driving and especially high horsepower control, I mean, that's pretty huge, so – I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's a, that's a, that's a phenomenal, uh, innovation. And, uh, you know, like you said, you thought it was just going to be a handful of people using it. You've already sold 300 units. And I think the more yeah. people understand what they're getting for the average guy. So you're, you're in agreement with me that anybody running a 2332 on the street that wants longevity performance and doesn't want to, you know, get a left ankle bigger than every or left calf bigger than every, everybody else. <laughs> The the rev the rev six clutch is kind of the way to go. Well, even still, with a lot of the products, you know, I mean, like we have these one piece chrome electrons that we have made that those kits in them. I mean, we have those for a reasonable price, and we have brought that to market. Um, we're making these chrome trailing arms that bolt on the stock collar that narrow the rear track by an inch and straighten out all the cameras. I got pro street wings that bolt on to the to the grill assemblies. You have to drill and hold. Uh, for years, people were taking their wedge base off the crankshafts. Uh, by using hammers and pry bars and stuff. I did a wedge base tool that just bolts on real simple and removes it. Uh, we actually bought works for uh, left-hand windows from, from Jim. Yeah. And um, rebranded it as, as an RLR brand, ProLight left-hand windows. So we have all the left-hand windows for the, the street guys. You know, if they're going to run like a, a, a cowlick rubber or if they want like a flush mount, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we do our Chevy Brake, uh, you know, front and rear. We do um, just just a whole line of stuff that we do. Um, and that's just some of the stuff that I just scratched down before you called me and we did this interview. Well, there's and, a whole lot more. And, and uh, that, I mean, uh, people can get the they can pick up the race pack stuff from you. They can get a lot of that, uh, a a lot of that stuff from you. And you've got the understanding of how you're putting this stuff together on the car. So in addition to that, I mean, they can get some of that support from you as well, where you've got the history and the, the know-how of, you know, I think there's, there's value in that knowledge because you can save someone from going down a rabbit hole of spending a few thousand dollars, then finally figuring out they should have gone to the right instead of to the left, you know, or, Oh yeah, back to Gene Berg again. What did he say? Buy one, cry one. Right, that's it. Right, you cry one time because yeah. of how expensive it is, but get the right, get the right part. Yeah, and remember back in back in the day, he was talking to people that were who were predominantly in their twenties, probably right. Yeah. Nope. And, now, and now, when we say that, we're talking to people who actually understand that because they're from that generation. You know, they know they already know that if you you're not going to if something's too cheap. Uh, they're, they're, you know, people are going to go, ah, eh, why is it so cheap? Like, you see a, a, a genuine Garrett Turbo on eBay for $200. Right. No right? free lunch. There's no <laughs> you know what I mean? free lunch. If something's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Yeah. No, I'm, I, so I'm looking at your, uh, your, your roll bar. So people, if they want roll cages, they can buy a weld together roll cage or even a bolt together roll cage. Um, yeah. On that on that roll cage, if you if you had a customer, let's say a customer is building a show car, right, and they like the bolt-in yeah. roll cage, but they said, "Hey, Ron, I know it sounds silly. Any way you could build this out of like a, and I don't know if it'd be counterproductive or what, but like out of an aluminum tubing or like a brush tubing or something more for like a show quality level, um, is that something? Obviously, since you've got the jigs and stuff, that's some custom end stuff that you could do in addition to your off-the-shelf type products." We do some of that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, the only thing I, the only thing I really won't do is go in, into areas where I shouldn't go. Like for instance, like if 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 it's not in HR legal, um, I try to steer away from it. In other words, if I tried to make something out of aluminum that wasn't really, you know, meant to be a safety item or something like that, I'd have to steer away from it. That being said, we do like for instance, um, you mentioned um, like roll cages. There's the roll cages that we sell, and we do a lot of those in house here. We also sell the kits for people that the DIY, so a do-it-yourself, out of mild steel incremental. But then we also offer a bolt-in roll bar that a guy with a car, a streetcar. And I, again, I never thought that I would uh, make so many of them, but it turns out that it's a popular item, and I, I really can't keep enough of them on the shelf. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just um, reached to an out-of-house uh, place to start making them in, in quantity because um, making them here with my vendor and my guys and stuff, it, it needs to be done now out of house. So I, I found a, uh, a bend house that could laser cut and laser, you know, bend, uh, you know, CNC bend all the stuff for me. So I'll get pallet loads of these deals and I'll just assemble them in house and, and basically put them together. But literally, if you buy one of my bolt and roll bars, you can buy the bolt and roll bar, get it shipped to you. Uh, and once you open the box, you can have this thing in in less than an hour, literally. I mean, literally all both together, and you can have it in the car in less than an hour. And now you have complete safety equipment in your car. So it, it, even though it's a really big item, you know, it's kind of pricey, you know, but 
if you try to take it to a local shop somewhere, they're going to charge you at least that or more. Yeah, you're and not. Then will it be done right? So you're not getting it built for that price locally by a by a custom chassis shop. Yeah. They're not going to spend the oh, time and energy. To, I have seen. I've seen, and you alluded to it earlier. I've seen what some people uh, have put together, and it's just like, oh my gosh, he paid this. I mean, first of all, what ends up happening is a lot of these guys will take and they'll trust their car to somebody. And the car will get held hostage for a year or two or three years and never the work will never get done. And then they'll have to go pull their car. So, you know, that is one sad testimony that happens a lot. And I think in every industry, but I'm not really concerned about the V8 industry or any other industry. I'm, I'm more concerned about the VW industry. So my goal, I think everyone's goal, and sadly not, but it should be to try to answer your phone, answer your emails, talk to your customers. You know, offer customer support, do the best you can, and just, you know what? Put the, put the best foot forward. I mean, not everybody's meant to own their own business, for sure. It's hard, especially here in California. I mean, everybody's got their hand out from the state, the yeah. government, all these agencies and stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's the higher red sector. That's for God, I'm sure. But you know what? If I hadn't, have, if I hadn't have started when I started, when it was a lot easier, when I had a lot more energy, a lot more time, a lot more enthusiasm, a lot more youth, um, starting at a later state would have not been an option. But you know what? To be honest, with one exception that I told you earlier, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's – I think that's – I think it's great. I'm glad that you do what you do. And uh, I, I do have – so I wanted to just get from you for the average guy that wants to build a fast street car. They're not – maybe uh, testing two night or something like that. But mm-hmm. what are what are some of the key components if if let's say take engine out of the equation they're just going to get a motor and trans and there's going to be a decent setup as far as the most bang for their buck performance running straight line down the track and yet gave them three or four things to do what's what are the what what are the best things they could do suspension wise setting up a street car to be able to run good and hook good at the track um. I think that number one, start with a good car. I've seen people try to start with a real uh, beat up, used up uh, wreck of a car, and then by the time they get off into it, uh, then they realize that they started with a hunk of junk. So first of all, I think starting with a righteous car. Um, second of all, find somebody with a good reputation. You know, it's been said that success leaves clues, mm-hmm. and what that means is everybody says they're the best. But for instance, if you went to go on the Samba to look up complaint threads, uh, you should be able to see at least in that forum where not to go buy your stuff. And sometimes that is as much of a big deal. Yeah. Find somebody, find somebody to help you if you're not a car guy or if you're, you know, if you need more expertise than you feel like you have. Ask around. See who it is. You know, word of mouth travels pretty fast. Um, Find somebody quality who can guide you through your experience. Okay, so there's start with a good car. Find somebody who can point you to the right training guy, to the right motor guy, uh, to the right this, to the right that. Then, once you've done those two things, uh, stick with them. Don't camp hop. Um, a lot of people, um, oh, this guy, this guy, this guy, and they end up going to five different shops for five different uh, trades of thought, and then they show up at the next shop, and the guy says, that guy's stupid. He don't know what he's talking about. We gotta start over. You know, there's a lot of that going on. So mm-hmm. if you if you follow those things, um, then once you start out, I mean, I think um, I think like I said earlier, uh, back in the day, we would just put a big motor in something without focusing on 
the safety aspect of it, and the safety includes any kind of safety equipment plus the brakes. I would just, you know, make sure the car's got good brakes. Suspension-wise, um, most of the stuff that we do, uh, we use aftermarket torsion bars. Uh, we go bigger, of course, like we said earlier. Uh, we have our shocks. Uh, we strange engineering makes all of and valves all of our shocks for us. Um, I mean, I've just I've sold sixty pairs of shocks in the last two months. Wow! How crazy! Right. I mean, I I never thought people would step up to buy shocks like that. Again, well, but such a quality part. Who's making? Yeah, yeah. Who, who's making great quality shot? I mean, I had to buy QA ones for my Gia. That's what I had on the Gia, and. Right. I think people were, were no longer the KYB club. You know what I mean? Looking for the KYB gas yeah. adjust shocks. Like, and you know, hey, hey, God bless KYB. And sure. How many years they they held the torch and were the standard for the industry for a lot of years. But at some point, when computers and the internet and the internet, basically technology kind of took off and it left behind clutches, it left behind suspension. Yeah, the motor guys, the motor guys picked up on it. Oh, new cams, new. Just do that, and the motors made you know uh, using uh, a deck uh, deal to hone your cylinders, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to make sure they're square and straight. I mean, the, the power that we're making now is so much more than the power we could make back then. The cars have to change. You have to upgrade the suspension. You can't use the the old selector drop style of lowering the car rides like covered wagons or nothing, right? Right. When we do one of our narrow beams, they ride like stock, literally. I mean, you put one of our narrow four-inch beams in there with the shocks, with our shocks, they ride like stock, right? This, yeah. this, this, myth, this myth idea that if it's just because the car is low, it has to ride horrible, it, it, that's wrong. That was maybe the case 25 years ago, but that isn't the case now. In the back, when we put bigger torsion bars in, it's just simply to control the amount of power. So, like, for instance... If you put a big cam in your motor, would you just use stop valve springs? No, you can't. Why? Right. Because it wouldn't hold. It wouldn't hold. Well, when you put a big motor in the car, let's say a big motor is uh, anything over 100 horse, you need to step up the size of the rear torsion bars. I mean, really, you do. When you put bigger torsion bars in there, now you have control. Uh, then you put our shocks on. Again, they have an external knob on the outside, so you control and you control it, and they're valved correctly for what you're doing. Um, then, uh, like in the rear, we, we almost often use uh, limit straps so that when you let off the gas, we talked earlier about letting off the gas on the top end, right. when you end up back in a positive camera situation. The limit straps, um, back in the day, people would just weld steel flop stops, but every time you let off the gas, it would be bink, you know, you'd hear that solid feeling of metal to metal. Well, the straps are really gentle, you know, and they're easy, you can just put them on, you just, they just give you longer bolts and... Uh, spacers and you just put the straps on so once you do those things i mean dude you're ready for 200 250 300 horsepower uh as far as the suspension in the car torsion bars uh we we do like adjustable sprinklers i have to say that because if you've ever tried to change the sprinkler oh, yeah. on a car without having it adjustable it's a bit of a process and it's, it can take up a while yeah it's an so, uh, ordeal <laughs> yeah i know it is and you know so we, we do that, and so once you have the adjustment on the car in the back, from the shocks to the spring blades, um, you really can control everything. And then, you know, if you, you know, I've got a lot of customers that have two 250 horse motors that drive around the street, and you could have a mid to low 11 second drive around car that drives nice. Now so, let me let me ask yeah. you one question: What's your thoughts yeah. on those traction bars that connect the rear shock towers? Um, do they work? I think it's better than I think it's better than nothing. Uh huh. But but it 
still um, the angle, like you call on the uh, shortcut, um, it still is that's a really hard angle right there that, that comes off the top of where the shot goes down to where the frame horns are. And right. If you didn't have nothing at all, that would be like a caper bar, what you're talking about. Yes, that yes. would be better than nothing. But like when I did the broken roll bar, I actually made these traction bars that actually bolt on with the roll bar underneath the package tray that goes straight down from the roll bar to the frame horns. With and a, when you put that on and bolt that to the rear engine mount that goes to the two big bolts on the frame horn, then you can effectively have tied the roll bar into the frame horns and you have no more movement. So I know back in the day, like some of the guys were in you know, the bird field. So when you would put the crossbar under there and have the two J hooks that go up and, right. you know, after so many launches and so many shakes, then you have to go out and retighten up the, you know, the, the nuts and the bolts and tighten it up, tighten it up. And then after the cars had run a while, you see that it was kind of bent and tweaked and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of pressure going on there. Yeah. So the, the bolt and roll bar you make, you, you tie it into the rear, uh, to the yeah. rear torsion bars or the rear, yeah, rear yoke. Options. So, you know, yeah, basically, you can buy the bolt-in roll bar with the driver's side door bar. It comes with You can upgrade to the passenger side so it's even, so both sides have a door bar. Just slide on and off. And then uh, the other option is, other than powder coating, which we offer, is the traction bar that bolts on under the package tray that ties the roll bar down to it. It's all bolted. There's no weld. So it bolts straight into your tranny mount where you put the two bolts in the frame ones. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And does yeah. is it a, is it because I've never had a car where I did it and then didn't do it. I've never had one yet. Is it a noticeable mm-hmm. difference driving the car? Oh my gosh, yeah. So you know, it, it, I tell you what. Here's what customers tell me: they didn't really realize how much the car moved around till after they put the deal in there. So you know, sometimes when you like pull into a like, street, pull up to somebody's house that has a little bit of a steep driveway, and it's a lower bump, so you kind of pull it at an angle, right? Mm-hmm. And you can kind of, you're aware that the car's kind of moving. You know, it's not like a convert or anything like that, but you're aware that the car's kind of, you know, a twist going on. Yeah. Once you, once you put the bolt and roll bar in there, when you pull in that same driveway, the car stays put. I mean, it, you, the car doesn't roll anymore. It doesn't have that body roll. Um, also, when you go down the road, uh, the car actually, you can, the suspension uh, takes up the, the dips in the road after you put the roll bar in there. Because even though, you don't really realize how much the car's moving around. The body, uh, I mean, I've had cars apart for years. I've taken them apart. I mean, I've had so many times. The, the only way a Volkswagen is strong is when it's all bolted together. I mean, if you've seen the Volkswagen floor pans, they're pretty thin. Oh, yeah. Uh, the body in the roof section across the roof, if you open the doors, you can literally cut it in half with a, a good, you know, Ginsu knife, right? I mean, there's not a lot in the roof, right? Yeah. There's almost, it's all sheet metal. So the car moves a lot more than you think it moves. And when you put one of these roll bars in there, you're reminded real quick, which what customers tell me, how much more stable the car feels and how much more rigid the car is. Well, that's cool. I mean, uh, listen, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about a roll bar for my split window. So uh, I may be giving, <laughs> I may be giving you a call and might have you see if you can powder coat one white. So, uh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do, we do custom versions of that too. So if you want something different, you know, like you want the seat bar in a different spot or, you know, that's just a difference to attach your, your shoulder harnesses. And, you know, I mean, I, I even, I even did a lot of those for guys who, um, just had a regular street bug where it was just the main loop only. I had one version that bolts down to the floor. It's just the main loop. 
And then it actually bolts in in the late models, you know, where the shoulder strap bolts up under the pillar right there. Yeah. Uh, there's a tab that comes off the side of the roll bar where it bolts there. So you just basically have the roll bar, this inch and three quarter, 83 wall piece of chromoly that's in at the main, uh, B-pillar there. So you have side protection. So if you get, you know, if you should get hit from the side, it won't cave in on you, you know? Yeah. Well, that's listen. That's rad, man. Look, we we we've learned a lot by having you on the podcast. We've got. Is there anything <laughs> we're anything we're leaving out you wanted to bring up before we wrap it up? Uh, you know what? I mean, for all those people that were just sit and listen to this deal, I just you know what? The Volkswagen industry is, is a really cool place. And again, I've had a view that I you know not a lot of people have had, and my view has been a good one. Um, I've been on both sides. I've raced uh, the imports. I've raced with the VA guys. Um, we got something special. Um, you know, the passion of these cars and a lot of those giants that have went before us and I've alluded to the fact of, that I've had, I've been blessed by a lot of the people, my roommates, people that were bright, people that have really colored my world. Um, I just give a shout out to them and, and you know, you see them, you know them, they're, they're the team on the internet now and the team at the races or maybe even know them, maybe you're even listening. But, um, it's things like this, you know, just keeping, people informed and aware of, of how cool it really is. And look, hey, I know there's a lot of stuff going on right now, and it's an election year, and it's COVID this, and riot that, and who knows what the next big thing is. But you know what? Look around. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of good things happening, and there's way more cool stuff, way more cool stuff than there is this bad stuff that's going on. And the bad stuff's always going to be here, but you know what? We have a cool hobby and a cool passion, and I'm just Again, I'm blessed. I'm thankful. And, um, you know what? I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you for reaching out to me, uh, to be included on your program today. I, I'm, I'm privileged to be here. No, absolutely, man. It's, it's been my honor to chat with you because you've done so much for the drag racing industry and, and, and a lot of that innovation that's spilled into street cars into our hobby and given us the entertainment to watch fast cars go. I mean, I, yeah. I'm thankful to, to get you on here and get a little bit of your knowledge out there to our listeners who, who love to hear, hear it from the guys that make it happen so uh i can't yeah. thank you enough for and coming you know the, on the podcast oh you're welcome and you know what for all the folks who do catch this um one of the things i said earlier was about you know guys like me and people in the industry uh, the guys that answer their phone the guys that answer their emails the guys that are down for the industry and like i said about mp and, and any other company that would purchase uh, one of the companies in this industry, when the water level rises, all boats rise with it. So what's good for anybody should be good for everybody. And I've always been under the uh, the position that there's enough room for everybody. There, there literally is. There's enough room for every training builder, every motor builder. I mean, there's enough customers. There's enough market share. There's enough. Um, this is not a can we all get along thing, but what, what it means is that the industry is a better place when – more people are pulling on the rope and going all in the same direction. And I just, you know, again, I, I can't say enough. I mean, if I had never met the people that I met early on, what would I be doing right now? Would I be just working a nine to five somewhere doing whatever? Would I've never gotten into this? I mean, I don't know. It's been a cool ride. And I tell you what, it's not over. Uh, I just, I look forward to doing much, much, much more. And I, I appreciate all the people that are listening. And if you have any questions, if you have anything you need, if you need to know where to go, where not to go, uh, privately, I'll share that with you or, or at least try to do the best I can to steer you in the right direction. I mean, you know, not everybody's going to come to me uh, for stuff, and that's fine. There's enough room for everybody, like I said. But um, I'm happy, and uh, I'm busy, 
and I just thank you guys. Yeah, and people can get at you at ronlumisracing.com. And yeah. Loomis is L U M M U S in case you guys yeah. in case you guys didn't know, but ronlumisracing.com is your website where you can get all your vintage speed stuff. You can get yeah. that uh that the your new clutch and yeah. um I think uh it's been really enlightening. I've enjoyed the stories and, and by all means when you've got something new coming out, man, bring it to Let's Talk Dubs. Let's let everybody out there know what you have coming up and uh Let's definitely do what we can, and our listeners, man. Let's let's support RLR and guys like that that are out there just just grinding yeah. away at it every day. Yeah, rock and roll, man. Thank you, I appreciate it. Hey, Ron, I appreciate it, man. Good talking to you. All right, buddy. Peace. All right. Well, if you like that podcast and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to Let's Talk Dubs podcast. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram, as well as if you want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com. Pick up some merch and support your favorite VW podcast. Until next week, guys. Later. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have a